Hello? What's your favorite scary movie? Fear the Talking Queer. Part 2. Two? Who's gonna do that? Sequels suck. Hey, bitch. Hey, bitch. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. You know, I'm getting over Valentine's Day. Just yeah. Because <laughs> by the time this episode comes out, it'll all have happened. I'm assuming it's going to be a great day, even though technically it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> right, right. I heard you snacking on that candy, though. <laughs> I know. I know. I got me some Valentine's Day candy over here. Some some Valentine's Twizzlers. Yeah, some Twizzlers. <laughs> Mmm, delicious. Oh my god. Okay, now let's all take a second to hear him chew it. ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a nice shirt, by the way. Thank you so much. It says sweet screams, bitch. Wait, where did you get it? <laughs> oh my gosh, I got it from Fear the Talking Queers, my favorite podcast. Doesn't it look incredible? It looks amazing, sweetie. <laughs> well, I am you. so ecstatic of the response that we got for our merch. Yeah, absolutely. Like people have started receiving their merch now. Like last yes. time we were with you guys, like the orders were in, but nobody had, uh, you know, a thing yet. But now people are starting yeah. to get them, and they're sending us amazing videos and pictures of them in it. And I, we couldn't be, we couldn't be happier. You know, like just with the response and how positive everybody been i know it's been so great and we love hearing the feedback like you know we want to know what they look like we want to know how you received it was the shipping fast like let us know yeah and even if you there's things that you don't like about it like we're not married to anything when it comes to this and who knows maybe we can you know fix whatever issues there are but the only way we'll know is if you let us know so um, right thank you for all the response yeah if you want to send us a message that says it's fucking ugly (laughs) Do it, literally do it. Like literally, that do will it. help yeah. us because that that'll help me sleep at night knowing that people aren't receiving things that are hot fucking trash. Right. So aside from the merch that we have on sale, we also have stickers, free yes. stickers. Come get your stickers. Yeah, we we like have hella stickers that we need to give away. Bitch, we have hella fucking stickers. Okay, so we have like a bulk order of these stickers. We have the horror VHS sticker, and we have our season one Instagram logo of Fear the Talking Queers on a sticker. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It looks like Linda Evangelista. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a model? Did it stone those tights? (laughs) (laughs) So we are giving these away for free, but you do have to do something, bitch. You just can't be getting shit for free. Nothing in life is free. (laughs) That's right. You got to put a little elbow grease into it. You know, put your back into it. Right. So you can email us at fearthetalkingqueers at gmail.com or if you follow us on Instagram at fearthetalkingqueers or just find some way to message us. Like we're available everywhere. Fear the Carrier talking queers. Pigeon. Fucking, <laughs> you know, payphone. <laughs> like, yeah. Give us a ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ring me on my Sally. Page me on my beeper. Page okay? me. Yeah. Call me, beat me if you want to reach me. <laughs> So we're honestly we're all online. So like we have ways to get to us. And all we want to know from you is why you listen to us, what your favorite episode is, and why that's your favorite episode. Yes. And which one do you like better, me or Frankie? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Please don't. Please don't include that. <laughs> I know he'll be so sad. You guys don't. Ah! 
Um, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> oh, and then of course include your name if it's different from your Instagram name and your mailing address so that we can get these stickers over to you. I just mailed out a bunch today, all over the world, bitch. Canada, UK, all these different states yeah. that I've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and so, yeah, we are international, baby, so um, no matter where you are, you can definitely get a sticker from us, and you can rep us on, I don't know, your laptop, your, uh, I don't know, your shirt, your car. Your butt. Oh my god, the best place to put your sticker. Yeah, over your nipples. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly yes yes so um send us your address and you got a sticker coming your way Woo! so to continue our little february tradition we are um continuing our month of obsessions uh two weeks ago for the fear episode we did hot men's yes and then last week with uh fangirls podcast we did obsessions with sweets and candies and desserts same reaction as the hot man (laughs) right both delicious both delicious both i want in my mouth hole uh and my butthole Uh, mm, (laughs) i could do without one in my butthole the men <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna spin this wheel again and we'll see what we get again. We don't know what's gonna pop up here. We never know. So yeah. take it away, Vanna White. Alright, here we go. Ooh, what skincare are we obsessed with? Oh my god. We kind of had a little bit of an episode on this a long time ago, one of our our earlier fairs in, um, in yeah. podcasting. So this will be a nice little update to see where we've been and how our skin yes. regime has changed. Like, I feel like that changes all the time, right? Right. No, it totally does. Because you have to change with the seasons. You have to yeah. change based on your age and, you know, everything else. Absolutely. So what are what are some of the products that you're using right now that you were obsessed with? I'm so obsessed with. Okay, so I went to a farmer's market in Napa um, probably a few months back, and I bought this, um, the raw African black soap. Oh, yeah. Which is not black. It's like, you know, brown with the little, you know, little crumbs in it and things. So (laughs) I absolutely love it. It lasts forever because you only need a small amount and you just smear it on your palms and get it together all sudsy. And it, like, I've literally had it for like a year now. Actually, I think I said a few months ago, but no, this was like pre-COVID. So like wow. I had this for over a year. I was like, yeah, what farmer's market is opening during COVID? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's, and it's so, it just keeps my skin super clear, super clear. So I would definitely recommend raw African black soap wherever you can get it. Um, and then also I got these sheet masks like i was ready for this oh my god you were how How did you have that right next to you i I have it in my drawer right here next to me so i have this like 36 pack that i got on amazon and the brand is called dermal um i can't read this but i'm pretty sure it's from korea yeah made in korea um and they have different ones this one's snail bitch they have like oh yeah i yeah i've definitely done a snail mask before and they don't they're not disgusting. It's actually really like a no. pleasant scent, you know? It's not like yeah, disgusting. These, 
These are full of like aloe vera, hyaluronic acid. So it's so good for your skin. And honestly, I've used like two of them already. One was like snake and the other one was like rose or something. Did you say snake? Snake. Oh my God. I was like, but but it's not snake, like the animal. Filet mignon scented. Yeah. (laughs) Filet mignon. Filet mignon. Demorphation mask. Um, Yeah, so when I used them, I was like super hydrated. I looked super young, super gorgeous. Yeah. And then let me tell you about one more before before we get to you. Okay, I made my own face scrub and I made it for also one of my coworkers and she loves it and so does her boyfriend. So it's like brown sugar mixed with organic cane sugar. And then you just add like some honey and some jojoba. Jojoba? What'd you call me? Jojoba oil. J O J O B O A. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Jojoba, jojoba, jojoba. So you put that in there, or some vitamin E, um, some vitamin E, some sort of carrier oil, right? Sure. Turmeric some lavender oil tea tree oil and you just scrub your face you can use it on your lips and honestly the first time i used it i literally felt like it buffed wrinkles from around my eyes whoa that's amazing that's and that's hard that's like hard to do like the eye area is so hard to you know to get control of right it's so sensitive yeah it's so sensitive absolutely one of the things that i have really enjoyed using is something that you actually recommended last time we did um, <gasps> skincare, which is uh, a jade roller. I'm obsessed with this little oh jade God, roller. Oh my God, obsessed. Do you keep it in your refrigerator? Oh my gosh. Uh, no, I would, except for my... I'm on the fucking third floor of my little skinny little townhouse I live in. So like the trek to the fridge is like far. But I should, but it's so nice. Yeah. I, I just love like after I like do my my moisturizing routine and cleansing routine mm. at night to you know rub the jade roller and you um i've been like rubbing it towards like my temples because that's you know it's a good way to relieve puffiness and it's also just like just feels good you know yes. and, you, and you start from your collarbone and you go up and then you uh move out on your face like towards your hairline on your face yes and it reduces um inflammation or whatever kind of puffiness that you have and also just feels like a really nice facial massage yeah and the reason jake says that like to roll it from like the center of your face out to like your hairline or your temples is because the water collects in your face which causes bags and wrinkles and all that puffiness in your face the puffiness and the swelling so if you massage it from the center to the temple it allows the water to drain through your system your lymphatic system your lymphatic system yeah it's so nice i love the jade roller so beautiful and then um another product that we've actually been using which is um really interesting is uh new jlo beauty we uh yes you got it so for christmas i ordered joey um some jlo beauty products and naturally i'm also using them because what's his is mine god damn it Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, like <laughs> and so um we only got we only got two things. We only got the cleanser and we got the SPF. And the clen- and the cleanser is so good. Like of all the things probably like we even went to Sephora recently and we like tried some of the things and they're and they're pretty good. Like her, the line is pretty nice, but like the cleanser is great and Joey 
you know, being a drag queen. Yeah, sort of in retirement now, but being a drag queen. Uh, no. I, I know. He says that um, it's the only facial cleanser he's ever used that has gotten all of his makeup off in one try. And, like, that's, like, a lot Whoa. of, like, that's, like, drag queen makeup. That's not, like, you know, home Right. On so the they must have makeup. tested it on J-Lo herself. Yeah, because that bitch is a drag queen. <laughs> she's a fucking drag queen. She is. But, honestly, I mean, she wears a lot of makeup. But, I mean, she still has flawless skin. Like, she loves to post. Gorgeous. You know, like, just bare skin posts. But it's a really good cleanser. Um, I use it today. I We did a little photo shoot with a little makeup on. And it, honestly, I can attest to it. Like, the cleanser is great. And the SPF is great, too. Like, we all need a good SPF because the sun yes. is... Okay. Right, bitch. Yes. That and shit will age the fuck out of you. Absolutely. And But you know, the only problem about this JLo Beauty line is that it's fucking expensive like, right i mean her name's attached to it but i mean it is good we tried the um the complexion there's like a complexion cream or something that's supposed to like even out your skin tone and um, we used it a little bit of it and um bitch we were sparkling up and down the street <laughs> walking down oh it, my god it, it's so looking sh- gorgeous oh it's looking gorgeous it's really shimmery um they have different like skin tone colors and um yeah it's really great so uh, you know JLo Beauty is the shit. I mean, again, we only have it because it was a gift that I, you know, got. Like, I probably wouldn't casually go and buy JLo Beauty, but it, for a fun special occasion, right. I will say it, it is actually a genuinely good product. Ooh, I mean, look at her. I mean, look at her. She's, she's fucking flawless. Honestly, yes. Her and that Cindy Crawford, the Cindy Crawford line of skincare also, I watched the infomercial and I'm like blown away and I'm like, I need this. Yeah, product in my life, <laughs> they've sold us with the, their skin alone. I will throw my money at them, literally. Love it. So yeah, those are my new sort of skincare obsessions in the year of 2021. Oh my god, we're like the face of these products. Yeah, hello, sponsor <laughs> us, baby. I think that's what the thing girls say. BB. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Now let's get into our favorite obsession of all our favorite movie of all time scream oh my god i have been obsessed with this movie since i was six years old yeah i've been obsessed with this movie probably like a few years later ah uh, like but you and i are a little different in age like you're just like slightly you're much older you're just like slightly <laughs> younger than me and um so probably around the same time i was obsessed with this movie uh probably when i was about right after scream 3 came out on dvd so when i was like oh my i was God. like 10 11 ish yeah yeah it's because scream 3 was actually the first one i had ever seen i ever saw i was gonna say we were introduced to scream through scream 3 right yeah isn't that weird <laughs> so funny by the way we are very well aware we've already done an episode on scream <laughs> But it was very surface level. Well, I mean, I think that it was our first episode we ever recorded. Ever. Ever. But we didn't release it until a couple weeks later. And we recorded it twice. We did. So um, we just, you know, we were still learning what we were doing. And I think that we wanted to give... The uh, each individual film the time it deserves, you know, like this movie deserve deserves more than just lumping all four of them into one hour long episode. So let's get right into the synopsis. What do you say? Yes, bitch. It's Sunday service. Let's read the Bible. Yes. <laughs> Scream, released in 1996, written by Kevin Williamson and directed by 
R.I.P. Wes Craven. Mm, daddy. <laughs> Our movie begins in the peaceful Northern California town of Woodsboro. Sorry, hold on just a second. Okay. The end. <laughs> <laughs> we meet Casey Becker, played by Drew Barrymore. <laughs> yes, I'm Drew, and I'm the star of Scream. <laughs> yes, literally the godmother of Scream. Okay. She is getting ready for a movie night with her boyfriend, Steve. She has a pan of Jiffy Pop on the stove, and her VCR is ready for the scary movie she rented. Casey receives a phone call from an unknown man with a suave voice. Casey tells him he has the wrong number and hangs up. He calls back. He flirtatiously begins a conversation with her, leading to a discussion of their favorite scary movies. Casey reveals her favorite movie is Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around stocks babysitters? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, your impression is spot on. (laughs) Yes, Drew Barrymore. Drew, are you here? Are you here with us? Knock twice. I'm so excited to be here. Okay. Um, The conversation takes a turn when the man asks for her name. When she cutely asks why he's asking her name, he says it's because he wants to know who he's looking at. Casey hangs up on him, but he calls back. The man turns sadistic and threatens her life. He instructs Casey to turn on the porch light. When she does, the light reveals Steve tied to a chair, being held hostage. When Casey asks the man what he wants, he says he wants to play a game, a horror movie trivia game. If she gets the questions right, they live. If not, they die. He tells her to turn the porch light off so they can start the game. The man starts off easy, asking her who the killer is in her favorite scary movie, Halloween. Casey answers correctly, saying Michael Myers. Then the killer asks who the killer is in Friday the 13th. Casey excitedly responds, Jason. Jason. It was Jason. (laughs) It was Jason. Unfortunately, the man reminds her that Mrs. Voorhees, Jason's mom, is the killer in the first movie. And Jason. No, it was Jason. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. (laughs) Jason didn't show up until the sequel. The man declares that Steve is cut from the game. Casey frantically turns the porch light on and is horrified to see Steve completely gutted, his entrails falling into a steamy pile on the ground. Look that bowl of chili. <laughs> it always looks like a bowl of chili to me. I know. You always say that. You love that. I always that. say it. I love it. I subscribe to this idea that he actually just spilled chili on his lap. <laughs> and then passed out. <laughs> yeah. And then like, he's like, oh, damn it. My food. I'm just going to bed. Yeah. The caller says he has one more question. A bonus round. He wants her to guess which door he's at. She refuses to answer, and just then, a patio chair comes flying through the patio door beside her. Casey makes a quick escape out of the kitchen door into her yard. She sees her parents' car returning home in the distance. It isn't long before the killer finds Casey. This is the first time we see what we come to know as Ghostface. The killer wears a black shroud. A white mask covers his face. Uh, oops. <laughs> face. His face. A white mask covers his face. The mask looks like the face of a screaming ghost. The killer catches Casey, stabbing her in the chest, then choking her. Mr. and Mrs. Becker are home and they make their way to the front door. Casey calls out to them, but her voice is crushed and they do not hear her. The Beckers enter the house and find their house has been broken into and the Jiffy Pop burning on the stove. 
They frantically look for Casey, Mrs. Becker calling 911. But instead of a dial tone, she hears Casey's screeching voice as she continues being stabbed by Ghostface. Mr. Becker tells his wife to drive to the neighbor's house for help. As Mrs. Becker steps out onto the front porch, she screams in terror as the camera zooms in on Casey's lifeless body, gutted and hanging from a large oak tree. Title card, Scream. Scream. (laughs) Scream. (laughs) Wow. If this isn't the most iconic opening of a movie ever, I don't know what is. Honestly, nothing in the franchise ever tops this scene. There are are parts that come close, but this is the most iconic scene. One of the most iconic scenes in horror in general. In movie history. I think people... In movie history. I think this is, yeah, definitely recognized as one of just an an iconic pop culture moment, an iconic film moment. Whether, yeah, whether you like horror movies or not, you probably know this scene. Or at least have seen pictures of it or are aware that it occurred where Drew Barrymore died at the beginning of this horror film. Right, literally. Obviously, we know that Scream is like a meta horror. You know, it took the the concept of meta to the next level, referencing multiple films. And we have a list here of most of the references that this movie has. And I'm sure there are still plenty more, but this is a pretty good list. Yeah, so, Kevin Williamson did his goddamn homework. He did his fucking homework. So the opening scene of Scream, um, they say the phone calls are an homage to When a Stranger Calls. But honestly, I feel like When a Stranger Calls took their idea from Black Christmas. So Yeah, I feel like, yeah, like the threatening phone call thing. I mean, maybe, uh, I mean, maybe both. But I mean, I think to me, it's always been kind of like a Black Christmas reference. Yeah, uh, totally. Everyone says when a stranger calls, but I don't think that's nearly as iconic as Black Christmas. So let's say Black Christmas. I I would say that when a stranger calls is technically more iconic, but I do think that the... Yeah, I think so. I think everybody knows like the the calls are... But the calls are coming from in the house also came from Black Christmas. It did. It's it's so weird. I know. Because those movies do have the same moment in them mm-hmm. so I, so they could technically be referencing either either or who knows who knows which version kevin williamson watched so a new reference that i also learned about um is i never put this together but casey hanging from the tree they say is very similar to the first body discovered in suspiria whoa the, okay. the body comes crashing through the ceiling and it's a girl who's hanging her name is pat hingle and she's been stabbed multiple times and she hangs from the ceiling of the school wow i'm not gonna lie i think that especially after last week's episode where we gave a little um you know educational moment on giallo i think we should probably watch suspiria i know i've never seen it i've seen the remake but i've never seen it i've seen the the remake but i've never seen the original so we should probably get on that that's literally a sin yeah, because, yeah, people reference Suspiria all the time, and I'm like, I know of it and what happens, but I've never fully seen it, and so we need to get on that. We totally do. So aside from that, we also have um, references to Nightmare on Elm Street, the franchise, Friday the 13th, Halloween. Um, yeah, the Titans. Yeah, exactly. The Titans of Terror. And we also get this moment where Casey's calling out to her parents and they can't hear her, which happens in Halloween 2 with Laurie Strode's character. And of course, you get the line, um, go down the street to the Mackenzie's house, which is a line that Laurie says in Halloween. So those are mostly the references from 
this first part. Yeah, so there's a lot of reference. There's a lot of, you know, what they'll say, what we'll call meta. And for yeah. those of you who, I feel like there's a lot of people who don't know exactly what meta means. Right. So meta is um, in art, whether it's theater or movies or whatever. It's like it's like a self-awareness of what it is. You know, the, right. it's re- it's reference to things. And I think it's I think like it says it's a piece of artwork that references other pieces of art within the same genre. Right. Let's look up a definition. I'm going to look up a, a tried and true definition of meta. According to, to Google, uh, what does it mean to be meta? So their top def- definition of meta is a term, especially in art, used to characterize something that is characteristically self-referential. So, yeah. So it's something, because this movie is a horror film, it is referencing other horror films. It's referencing the genre of horror itself. And so that's what it's, meta means. For those of you who are always confused if you're not sure what meta means. I know. Because a lot of people say Scream isn't meta. And I'm like, Bitch, <laughs> just because no. you don't like Scream doesn't mean that it's not meta. So there are a lot of the introductions into this. Like we learn, I mean, Drew Barrymore, honestly, she's the reason this film got made. Wes Craven was not going to do this movie. But when he heard Drew Barrymore was going to be, you know, Sidney Prescott originally, that he was like, oh, wait, A-list celebrity? I'm doing it. But at this point, he was kind of tired of making movies about girls that get chopped up. And he was like, I kind of feel bad about making cinema, like, violence against women. Like, he actually started to feel that way. So, um, and he says this in the commentary. He's like, I just thought it was too brutal. And I felt like karma was on its way to get me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, do you know what? It came to got him and rewarded him handsomely i would say i wonder yeah. what drew i wonder what drew barrymore i wonder what that first meeting was like for drew when they approached her about this i wonder if it, like how they presented it to her to get her on board i know well they they said that she read the script and loved it and was like i'm gonna be Sydney. but then when scheduling conflicts arose for her she was like well i still want to be part of this project i'm gonna be casey and so it's like, because she was like, how awesome would it be if I were Casey and I get killed 10, 20 minutes into the film? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was a brilliant move on her part. And it's one that, I mean, really paid off. For it sure. really paid off. I mean, good for, she is a producer at heart, goddammit. And maybe she wasn't producing everything she was doing yet, but she was still, you know, she has a smart ass mind for that. Yeah. Um, I think also the star of this scene is Roger Jackson as the phone voice. Oh, um, yeah. His voice carries on throughout the franchise and season three of the TV show. And it is just so iconic. And I remember it when I was taking classes at the college that I, w- I only did like acting classes. And I remember the teacher said that he wanted to bring in one of his friends who does voice work, voiceover work out of San Francisco. And his name is Roger Jackson. He's like, does anybody know who that is? And I'm like, Scream! He's the voice of Scream! <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course oh I know. Gosh. He never oh. came in, but... Oh, Fuck him. Just but just knowing just that kidding. my teacher was like friends with him, I was like, I know. Oh I remember. I remember hearing a voiceover. I think we probably took the same class, just not at the same time, at the community college. And yeah. um, I think I remember hearing Roger Jackson's reel, and I was like, oh my god, that's crazy. That's Ghostface. Yeah, yeah. I think that they. I don't think that he played the reel for us, but yeah. 
He also plays yeah. Mojo Jojo in the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> and he plays yes. Mr. Mucus in the Mucinex commercials. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. Well-rounded, for sure. <laughs> what range Roger Jackson has. I love that. I know. Okay, and then also a major character in this opening scene is uh, The Score by Marco Beltrami. Yeah. I mean, this score... So I can, damn good. Yeah, I can literally... If, just like a tiny snippet of it, I can recognize it. It's yeah. just so... Yeah, so brilliantly done. I think what this movie also does very well that the other movies don't succeed in, which makes them inferior films, is the satirical approach to talking about these horror movies, deconstructing them, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies aren't very good, you know, like taking this and winking at the audience, but it has this balance because then it gets very serious and the death of Casey and Steve are very intense and very gut-wrenching. Like, you feel it, and you're like, oh, this is very serious. Even though it started out as uh, sort of cynical and comedic, now it's, like, taking a turn for the worst, and now I'm scared. Yeah, I think that this movie definitely has a great balance of the comedy and the intensity, you know? And I think most people consider this movie probably even more of a comedy than a horror movie. I mean, most people, like, even, like, people that don't that aren't like huge horror people horror fans i've literally heard them go oh no scream isn't scary it's like a comedy i'm like yeah it is for sure i mean they're not wrong it's it is very funny and it's very it's very well written but um i think it does balance it out well where we have these comedic moments but then there are also just moments of full-on intensity which yeah um, i think the, the kills and the chase scenes and the motive at the end take it to that make it a little bit deeper than just being something surfacey. But that is right. how it got its R rating t- from an NC-17 to an R rating was by Bob Weinstein calling in and telling the MPAA that this is a comedy. And they're like, oh, it made them see it from a different point of view and they lowered that rating, which, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the Weinsteins. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, so Come. what do you think of, like, the actual chase scene? What, as far as what happens in it? Do you think it's, like, just, like, so perfectly executed? I do, because I feel like when he... When that patio chair comes through the door, she makes a run, she grabs a knife, like, what we would all do, and she exits the house. It's, like, the smart thing to do. So right. at this point, as an audience member, you're not like, no, don't go there, you know, because she could have went somewhere else in the house and hid in a closet or something. Yeah. But she has this moment where she's backing out of the, the kitchen door, and you expect that the killer's just going to come up behind her, and that doesn't happen. And then she's, then you can see where she lives, and that house is on a 30-acre vineyard in, I think, Santa Rosa. And so you kind of get the surrounding scenes. She can see the car in the distance. And honestly, at this point, I'm like run down the vineyards but yeah seriously. she <laughs> instead she creeps along the side of the house and then the only thing that i think is like a little bit hyper realistic in this moment is Ghostface jumping out of like a window and all we get is a sound effect without any glass or anything where he yeah. just comes and he jumps on her and kind of wrestles her to the ground yeah no i i agree but, with that but, yeah. but other than that i think it is, is super brilliant there's only one part that frustrates me every time i watch it is when Casey, her parents are walking up the porch and she's right there and she has the phone in her hand. And every time I just want to be like, Casey, throw the phone, throw the phone. If she would have 
thrown the phone against the wall, against the patio. They would have heard it and they would have looked at her. And it, uh, it just kills me every time. That's a I yell, crushing I, scene. I yell at the TV every time. I'm like, throw the you phone! You throw the bitch! Phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the parents are just like, we're pretty flowers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I love that. Um, uh, but yeah, I love this opening. It's iconic. There's not much we can say about it that probably hasn't already been said. Right. I love it. It's great. And that last shot of Drew hanging by the tree is just, it's it, its burned in my mind forever. It is it is very scary. It is really scary. That, that yeah, the imagery of Steve being tied to the chair with the, being gutted, and then that sort of, that quick pan that they had to do because of yeah. the rating, like, just to her body, is really effective. And you're like, I honestly God. think it's the scariest image in the entire film. Right there in yeah. the beginning, right. It never, it yeah. never reaches that level of because even Tatum's death even looks hilarious. But like, oh my God, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> but that, yeah, but that first that image of Drew Barrymore hanging by the tree is honestly terrifying, and um, yes. I love it. So but, uh, yeah, so creepy, and also just the surroundings of the house. Like we're also introduced to the town of Woodsboro in this scene, and you get a sense that it's kind of like this bourgeois wine country northern California town you know like where I live (laughs) (laughs) yeah and every single house is very isolated and that is one thing that yeah nobody has neighbors in in this movie (laughs) and very beautiful and honestly I frequently look up this house on Zillow (laughs) just to see how much it goes for it's like two million dollars it still has the pool it's on a 30 acre vineyard it's just I think that the Becker house to me is like the most beautiful like I just I want to live in this house so badly so what would you do to live in that house I would uh, kill you (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding bitch there's no no amount of money in the world to make me do that oh shut up you lying ass bitch (laughs) (laughs) but if there are any offers call me (laughs) (laughs) all right let's keep going the same night we meet Sydney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell, our hero, our queen, Nev. She types her way on her computer, but is interrupted by a noise outside. She goes to open her window to investigate and is startled by her boyfriend, Billy Loomis, played by Skeet Ulrich, not Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> he tells her he got bored at home watching an edited for television version of The Exorcist. Sydney and Billy are interrupted by her father, Neil Prescott, played by Lawrence Hecht, who reminds Sydney that he is going out of town on a business trip. When they're left alone again, Billy and Sydney begin to make out, Billy tracing her thigh with his hand. Sydney stops the makeout session, not wanting to take it too far, and Billy seems to understand, and the two kiss goodnight. And she also flashes them titties. Mm. Mm. Would you settle for a PG-13 relationship? <laughs> like, oh my God. Why doesn't he sh- flash his dick? I know. I'd love to see that. Maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in Scream 5. Yeah, Scream 5. Yeah, we'll see Billy's dick. The following day at Woodsboro High School, the news media descend on the campus and a police investigation of Casey and Steve's murder begins. Sydney sees Gail Weathers, played by... Queen Courtney Cox. I'm telling you, every yes, per- yeah. I we have so much love for every person in this film. Um, Iconic casting. 
Oh, totally. Lead reporter of Top Story reporting on a murder. Sydney doesn't know what is going on, but is soon filled in on the grisly murder details by her best friend Tatum Riley, played by Rose McGowan. Uh, a hero. Literally hero. a hero. A hero for all the women out there. Yes. Tatum tells her authorities are questioning the entire school. In English class, Sydney empathetically stares at the empty seat next to her, the seat once belonging to Casey Becker. The teacher informs them it's Sydney's turn for questioning. Sydney is questioned by Sheriff Burke, played by Joseph Whip, while awkward yet adorable Deputy Dewey Riley, Tatum's older brother, played by David Arquette, and creepy Principal Hemery, played by the Fonz, Henry Winkler, <laughs> watch on. Later, Sydney and Tatum meet up with Billy, Tatum's foolish boyfriend Stu, played by Matthew Lillard, and horror movie geek Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy. They discuss Casey and Steve's murder, debating who the killer could be, and joking about the carnage, comparing the crime to horror movies. The topic makes Sydney uncomfortable, and she leaves the group. Ooh, okay, we're introduced to a lot of people in this. Yes, and you know what? So, Sydney. This is our only glimpse of Sydney pre-murders you know i mean we she has a little affected because her her, we find out her mother was murdered a year before but this is you know as close as we get to seeing sydney have normal life for five seconds this scene with her and billy in in her room which i was like that's kind of sad literally (laughs) that's kind of sad i know it is sad this is a woman traumatized by the horror yeah and she has no idea what's about to happen to her for the next what, are, what, what year is it? 2021? And apparently this shit is still going to be going on to Sydney <laughs> yeah. next year? She's still being hunted by a man yeah. in a ghost face mask? Yeah, Jesus Christ. So, um, I always thought that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is really interesting. So, one of the things that you said about Billy Loomis, who, again, this is a reference to Halloween, Dr. Sam Loomis, Michael Myers psychiatrist, obviously. Yeah. Um, he, uh, it, you said not Johnny Depp, And it's funny because a lot of the producers, everybody made the comparisons to Johnny Depp. But one rumor that kind of went around was the reason he got cast in the part was because he reminded Wes Craven of Johnny Depp, who was in A Nightmare on Elm Street, another Wes Craven film. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But he actually said it's not true in the commentary. Yeah, he said um, that he didn't notice the similarities between Johnny Depp and Ski Ulrich until somebody else mentioned it to him. He's like, he looks a lot like Johnny Depp in Nightmare on Elm Street. He's like, you're right, he does. They're like, that's not why you cast him? He's like, no, I did not cast him because of that. I cast him because I thought he could play dangerous yet charming, much like Mark Wahlberg (laughs) in Fear. Wes Craven, you were a lying-ass bitch. You knew what you were doing. Don't don't try to pull that. I know, because the producer, Kathleen Kennedy, said no. Or was it Kathleen Kennedy? Jackie Kennedy. It was Jackie (laughs) Kennedy, of course. No, Kathleen Kennedy, okay, it's not her. (laughs) One of the producers said that he he was cast because Wes Craven said, he reminds me of Johnny Depp in Nightmare on Street. What's the real story here? I don't know. I don't know. We'll never know. But he said himself that no, it wasn't that. Yeah, but that PC hair, bitch. Ooh. That 90s, like, gelled, crispy hair he's got. Girl, that hair. I was like, you need a wash. Yeah. This totally makes sense why the character of Bobby in Scary Movie is a spoof of this. is like, trash. A trailer trash? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, he looks dirty. He does look dirty, but he's he's honestly so charismatic and super just he's like, great. dangerously he's- hot. 
Um, so some of the references we get in this section are um, Don't Fear the Reaper is playing when uh, Sydney and Billy are making out, which is the only song in Halloween 1978. <laughs> like the only actual yeah. song that is in that movie uh, because of its very low budget. And then we get mentions of The Exorcist. We get mentions of Basic Instinct. I love it. Um, so so who else do we find in this? We find Tatum, who Rose McGowan, honestly, her line delivery, her cool... Uh, Rose McGowan always has this coolness that she brings to all of her characters. So I love yeah. that. Oh, yeah, I love her um, in, then, in this movie. And then we have Courtney Cox, who, who we'll talk about a lot more. But in this one, she just kind of has a brief little cameo. Um... But she ends up being one of the final girls of this franchise. Oh, in the oh, in the you're talking about in this moment. I was like, she doesn't have a cameo in this movie. Not a cameo, no. But like in this part, <laughs> oh, in this like se- she could sure, just be se- written off as a cameo. Yeah, <laughs> total, totally, totally. I love, yeah, and like going back to Tatum, I love that she is. And I'll get into this a little bit more later, but I love that she's more than just like a vapid, stupid friend. Like, and I think that maybe their comment on this was to that she provides more for Sydney than I think we real that that could be initially thought of like mm-hmm. she's actually more than just her friend she's like her protector she's her guardian which yeah. is such an interesting you know take on the best friend role because usually they're not more than just like a slutty friend who gets killed and you know right. but, I th- but I think that Tatum is She's just a better friend than that. Yeah. She's like, act, she's, like a, she's like a real one, you know? Exactly. That's the beauty of having this deeper storyline interwoven into this film. Because you get to have these dynamics where you have more complexity to the characters than slashers of, like, the past, you know, or the yeah. 10 years before this. Where everybody was just kill fodder, as you say. Like, right. you know, where it's just like, we know what these kids are being set up for. But this one is more like... Yeah, you get to have that where the she has to be there, have the strength that Sydney needs because her mother just died a year before. So it's yeah. nice to have that depth, right? And she and she rises to that occasion too. Like she's there whenever Sydney has an issue. She's there to talk her through it. She's also honest. She's not always just saying what Sydney wants to hear, um, which we you know later on we'll get to. But like, I don't know. I just think that Tatum is like a great version of the best friend trope. She is. I really, uh, she's honestly one of the best characters in this movie. I love Oh yeah, Tatum in the franchise. Sydney. I love her. In the franchise, yeah. Um, one really interesting thing that I wanted to bring up, and this is just super interesting in general because I never really think about it, but Zach Cherry, who we know on Instagram as Retro Bitch Face, um, started his YouTube account like all about Scream. And one of the um, videos that he has is who killed who in Scream because, you know, we end up having two killers, Billy and Stu. Right. And his theory is that uh, Tatum, he knows that Tatum and Stu hung out that night that Casey was murdered. But he's thinking that Casey was killed afterward because he says that in order to pull this off, Billy and Stu had to be together that night. This is why it's so easy for them to get rid of Casey and Steve and also why we end up having Billy seduce, you know, Sydney into making out with him was sort of his way of keeping her busy as Stu went and basically grabbed or got Mr. Prescott somehow. Neil Prescott. Oh, you because think that's when it happened? 
I mean, I guess that would make sense. He says it does. It was make. It would make sense because at the end of the movie, he's wearing the same clothes that he's wearing in this scene when he tells Sydney he's going on a business trip. Oh, I never thought about. So it. Yeah, like, I, like, it I, I guess I never thought about when here. Neil was grabbed. I never thought about that. Yeah, like it would have to be that night because if it was the next morning, he'd probably be wearing something different. That's true. Wow. Who? Yeah. Dang. That's crazy. I know. Talk about With, opening your eyes. I know. Seriously. Hey. Thanks, retro bitch face. Yes. Um, so there's also another, I would say, another reference um, yes. to another horror film, which is another Halloween reference when Sydney's in the classroom and she's sort of like, you know, longingly staring at this empty desk. I feel like that's the scene is very reminiscent of Laurie Strode in her classroom having this same moment, you know. An English class. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this movie is literally littered with so many references. Um and you know he, Frankie literally has an entire paper of them printed out so um, that's yeah. just one that I noticed no that is a totally good one and didn't even have it on there <laughs> I know <laughs> and so and then we get to this fountain scene and I think this fountain scene is really important because this really shows us how how smart and also how like meta our characters are and how aware they are of of this world that they live in and, and cynical yeah, they're cynical and they also operate based on horror movies. I think it's so interesting that they're like a, te- a group of teens who actually do love horror films. I feel like yeah. that's kind of a rare thing, but I love that. Th- like, they're not like all geeky and nerdy, they- but they all know so much about pop culture and uh, the horror movie genre. Movies. Yeah. yeah. And I love that. I think that's so cool. That's like, they're like literally the friends group that I would want in high school. Oh, absolutely. Minus the like murderers. Our clique. Well, maybe. Right? Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> that would know, be well, you, we'll see, like, even just what we just said, where we're like, besides the murderers, well, actually, maybe that's kind of this uh, mindset that these characters have, where yeah. Casey and Steve die, and instead of being horrified or, like, like mysterious about it, they're more, like, excited that they get to be a part of this major yeah. news story and like possibly Splatter be on movie TV. Killed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like, like they're like dis- excited by it. They're and they're sort of desensitized by it. Like they're not really super. I mean, Sydney is obviously having a moment because of a, a year ago her mom literally was murdered, and so right. she's kind of going through it. But the rest of them sort of take it as like a little mystery that they are prepared to solve using all of their knowledge that they've gained watching movies. Yeah, they want to be in on it. Kind of like um, what we see in like Netflix documentaries, like especially the new one, Crime Scene, the Cecil Hotel one, where oh, yeah. it's like this video goes viral and then like people want to be in on the action. They go oh, my and they stay and they try to figure it out. These like, Reddit, detective. Reddit detectives? Just... Oh my God, are they? <laughs> yeah. They are. And, crazy. And that like that show Unsolved Mysteries that like re- that was rebooted reboot. for Netflix. Yeah. Oh my God, people were literally on Reddit solving these case- cases. Literally. Literally, there were several of those cases from Unsolved Mysteries that were reopened because of people on Reddit. That's crazy. Crazy. Yeah, yeah because people have a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it takes a lot of energy. Yeah, um, totally. I, I do have a question about this friend group. Where does Randy fit into this? I know. I mean, I feel like he's probably just... I mean, a lot of people from high school have the same friends that they've had since they were kids, right? Maybe, maybe, he, he, maybe he's just yeah. like that kid in the sandbox that was always annoying, but uh, he's, sometimes friends with Stu, sometimes friends with Sydney. It seems like yeah, like he's he just he's like their friend that just is there, and they all know Randy. 
I think we learned too that he kind of sticks around because of this sort of high oh, school yeah. crush she has on Sydney. On Sydney, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, he he's probably around more than they want him to be around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say that. Also, <laughs> he seems annoying. <laughs> yeah, what well, he is, he's for sure annoying. But people love Randy. People love Randy oh, because we're we because in this situation, as much as we would love to be the Tatum's and Sydney's, we would be the Randys. <laughs> I know. God damn it! I know. <sighs> no matter how big my breasts I'm not, get, I'm not going to ever be Tatum. Yeah. No matter how hard my nipples are, <laughs> <laughs> I will never be Tatum. I, I yeah I. I, I won't admit that. I will not. I'm not Randy. I'm Sydney. So. So you're in denial. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so one, uh, another thing about this fountain scene, I think that this movie does not give a flying fuck about letting us know that Billy and Stu are the killers from the get go. I think right. it's, all, it's almost completely obvious in this scene too, even how they speak to each other. Yeah, like, this conversation gives it all away. Yeah, and Billy is so sus. He is mm-hmm. just he might like when he's like, "I didn't kill anybody." Oh yeah, I didn't kill. I didn't kill anybody. And Billy says, "No one says you did." But how he says it, he might as well have just looked to the camera and fucking winked. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm the killer. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this movie cares about you knowing, and I think it no. relishes in that fact that it's like this is formulaic. This yes. is purposefully p- formulaic, and it's going to plan out exactly how you, how you think, how you it, think will, it will, is. but also because you think it's going to end like that. Exactly. Like, yeah, but that's the thing. It's like you you think that because you know how it's going to end, that's not how it's going to end, but that's exactly how it ends. Which is very intentional. Kevin Williamson says that when he was writing this, he wanted to build up these cliches and sort of shatter them, except when it came to the killers. He wanted to build up the suspects who actually turned out to be the killer, but make it so obvious to where the audience is like, it's not them. Like, it's that's way too obvious. Yeah. And then it, it is them. So that's like the one cliche like he keeps in the movie. Is yeah. that the, pe- the person who you think is the killer is actually the killer. Yeah. And you know what? That um, There's a new... I probably shouldn't spoil this. If you haven't seen the HBO miniseries The Undoing with Nicole Kidman, pause, fast forward a couple seconds. But okay. basically they sort of steal that same idea. And I was like watching it. I was like, wow. I was like, this is straight out of the Scream handbook. How they... How they because it's about a murder. It's like a, a murder mystery. And you're oh. like, it can't be that person because it's literally so obvious that, like, and then it is. And it's like, oh, okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's Great. Like, I knew it. Yeah, but it I does a good beginning. Right, but it is a good job at, like, making you feel crazy and, like, you have to suspect other people because it's so obvious. And that sort of runaround is is uh, really fun and it's really interesting. And it always, and it always catches you off guard because you're like, damn. It was right there the entire time, but like, yeah. But movies have now made me feel like I have to suspect everybody else other than the most obvious person. Right. The red herrings are not right. the, are never the killer. It has to be somebody right. else. Right. 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 Yeah. Sydney returns home after school. She talks on the phone with Tatum, making sure it's okay. And she can stay over at her house while her dad is out of town. She tells Tatum the police and reporters are giving her deja vu. We later understand what Sydney is talking about as she flips through TV channels, landing on Gail Weathers reporting live from the Woodsboro Town Square. 
We learn from the report that one year prior, Sydney's mother, Maureen Prescott, was raped and murdered. Sydney is disturbed and decides to take a nap before Tatum comes to pick her up. Sydney is startled awake by her ringing telephone, but it's Tatum saying she's on her way. When Sydney hangs up, the phone rings again, but this time it is Ghostface. Sydney believes the voice to be Randy as he begins to discuss horror movies. The killer tells Sydney that he isn't Randy and he's on her front porch. Sydney taunts the killer by stepping out onto the porch. No one is there. When Sydney is about to hang up, the killer tells her if she hangs up, she'll die just like her mother. Sydney hurries into the house and is quickly attacked by Ghostface running out from a closet. She runs upstairs to her room where she contacts 911 for help through her computer. The killer disappears, and just then, Billy shows up at her window. As he comforts her, a cell phone drops from his pocket. Sydney, unaware he had a phone, makes a run for the front door, suspecting he must have been her attacker. The police have arrived. Billy is taken into custody as Gail Weathers arrives on the scene with her cameraman, Kenny, played by W. Earl Brown. She is given the cold shoulder by Sheriff Burke and Tatum as she attempts to get information about Sydney's attack. News crews surround the police station. Sheriff Burke questions Billy as Dewey attempts to contact Neil Prescott. Dewey discovers Neil never checked into the hotel he was supposed to stay in. Billy will be held overnight while the police look into his phone records to see if he made any of the calls to Casey or Sydney. Dewey escorts Sydney and Tatum out through the back of the police station where Gail Weathers finds them. Sydney comes face to face with Gail. We learn that Sydney despises Gail as she is currently writing a book about Maureen's murder. When Gail says she'll send her a copy of the book, Sydney takes a blow to her face with a mean right hook, and Gail falls into the hands of Kenny, a bewildered look on her face. <laughs> <laughs> so, real quick before we get into the nitty gritty of this section, uh, yeah. Sydney has other friends on the school bus when they drop her off. Where the hell are those friends, and why the hell did they not get murdered? <laughs> I know those little sound bites of people. Yes, the ADR <laughs> of like, yeah. Bye, Sydney. Call me later, Sydney. <laughs> yeah. like, I love the one that says, "Talk to you later, Sid." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, where the fuck are those friends? And why? And she doesn't even re- acknowledge them. Yeah, she's just walking because that didn't even happen. And for some reason, they were like, "We need to add this in there." Yeah. So I actually have another moment that's kind of key to this investigation we're gonna go on <laughs> but it's much it's much later but it kind of has to do with this like these background people like who are they and why are they there right. um, so this is where we first learn that maureen prescott has anything to do with sydney's troubled past like we know that she's having a hard time with this but why it's because her mother's died yeah no this is like the yeah this is a whole backstory that we're about to get right now and we, this is where we first learned that all the, like we start be, to learn we start learning it's like the beginning of learning that all of this shit that happens is all maureen prescott's fault <laughs> yeah seriously oh my god especially by the time we get to screen three we're like wow by the time we get to screen five it's probably still gonna be maureen prescott's yeah. fault <laughs> being a shitty mom even after death no um, I do have to say that Sydney's house is actually the house I would want to live in. This is a beautiful oh, it fucking is home. Stunning. And what the hell does her dad fucking do? He is Seriously. he must be so rich. He has to be. Because this is obviously not the house that Maureen was murdered in. So they probably just purchased this house. It's brand new. You don't new. think so? No, I don't think so. 
According to Scream Maybe. 3, she was murdered in her the house. The house. I know, but who the hell would want to live there after? I feel like they would have moved. Do people usually move after people are murdered in their house? I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Is better their than, like, mom they... and their wife. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does that always Probably. <laughs> I mean, I guess that would be pretty traumatic. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe this is a new house. Yeah. Well, okay. So in this scene, Zach Cherry and his Who Killed Who in the screen movie, he talks about this scene. It's not Billy chasing her around. It's actually Stu. And what they've done in this scene, and I, I would have never known this. Zach, you have too much time on your hands. But <laughs> <laughs> when he's chasing Sydney up the stairs, if you slow it down, you can hear a sound bite of Ghostface, very muffled, saying, easy, easy. Which I think was taken from the sound bite that, that Matthew Lillard says later in the film, where Tatum is knocking him on the head with the lollipop, and he goes, easy, easy. Crazy. Wait, what? Yes. You know what scene I'm talking about when she snaps uh, yeah, him on the head of the lollipop? Yeah, stupidity. All, easy, easy. Yeah. Um, I, I believe they've taken that soundbite and plugged it into the scene while he's chasing her up the stairs and he's kind of having a hard time getting up there. And it's very slowed down and it's very, it's deeper. And it's uh, and if you slow it down, you can hear him easy, easy. It's so crazy. I mean, that proves nothing, but that is very interesting. That's is that supposed right? to be a clue, though? Or was that just... Incident? I don't think it's supposed to be a clue, but I think that they've kind of I mean, added these sort of sound bites from Billy and Stu later in the film and other dialogue that they say, and I think they've kind of like slowed them down and muffled them or made them grunts and then added them to those scenes, but just warped the voice. You know what I'm saying? Weird. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Great. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And then also in that scene, we get another reference to... Tom Cruise, all the right moves. You oh my gosh. And right. that's how <laughs> I know famous. that me and Tatum are soul sisters because I also would go out of my way to pause a movie on Tom Cruise's penis or any other. <laughs> so, <laughs> Anybody else in a movie. I mean, that is, that is a mood. That is. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But going back to um, the story of like Maureen and things, I think that's yes. what like makes this franchise really stand out to me is that there is a really compelling overarching story that flows through all of the films. There are yes. four films now and uh, minus a little bit of four because it does sort of act as more of like a reboot, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah. like fully like related to this plot, but through line through these films make it stand out. It's not like the Nightmare on Elm Street films, which kind of in and out had characters and right. uh, or like or the Friday, Friday, the, Friday 13th. the Thirteenth, which is you don't have to watch on. them in order. Oh, you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to know any of the characters other than knowing maybe a little bit who Jason is. And <laughs> yeah, he's not even the killer in the first one. So I don't know. There's something I really appreciate about this through line because it's give it gives us a chance to really connect to these characters and really care about them throughout this franchise and I think that's why the the you know the core three have survived all of them because we've we've been given a chance to get to know them and fall in love with them because of this right story that follows through you know yes. it's not just it's not new new people every time I don't know I and I just think that stands out that yeah. stands out to me as far as like a horror franchise goes. Of course, argue with us if you want to, but this storyline, Sydney and Maureen, 
the Prescott family makes this one of the most, probably the most consistent franchise in horror history. Yeah, absolutely. Even like the Leatherface, like the what do they call it? What, what's their last names? I don't know. Even Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't even have that. It's like a family. No, family. none of them do. Yeah, yeah. Everything's different. There's remakes and the, and what Scream does so well is that they prevent it from doing remakes because there's always something new. Like there's a new sequel or the TV series that has nothing to do with the movies. So there's always this separation. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, because even though yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just think that's so brilliant. And it just um, makes it very consistent and it allows us to follow this journey instead of just being like oh have you ever seen Scream 5 it's the one with this or have you ever seen Scream 3 it's the one with this or the one with the telekinetic girl or the one with the fucking right no it's like it's like a continued story like it's yes um, which I think is great anyway sorry I just it's great out there no that's that's um that's it's perfect um another part of this is Gail Weathers. We get to find out a little bit more about who she is. She's sort of this shark, you know? She's after the hottest story in town. um, She's sort of making a career off of Maureen Prescott's murder. Oh, totally. And she's like, on the surface level, you can think that she's she's like a bitch and she's a bit of a villain, but to be honest, I think she's just a fucking go-getter. And she knows what she wants and she she goes for it like she's not afraid to step on toes to get to where she needs to be and I don't think that makes her a bad person it just makes her an ambitious person right and And we do find that her instinct as a journalist is very strong because her her instinct tells her that you know uh, Maureen's murder Cotton Weary um, has been in prison they're gonna gas him <laughs> yeah. and they and she believes that he's not the killer and there's nothing really she can really do about it but she's like no he's not the killer and and she ends up being right yeah so that's true. she's yeah. fucking smart that's true she's smart and um i don't know yeah i love gail weathers she's great she's yeah one of the best characters in this franchise oh, yeah they all are every yeah. character is amazing oh yeah totally <laughs> i love them um can we talk about this scene? This scene okay. in Sydney's house um, where she's attacked by Ghostface for the first time. So why does Sydney have a deaf typewriter on her computer? Oh my god. And seriously, I'm like, <laughs> who has this technology I was like, on their computer? Even, we don't even Especially have this technology now. I know. I That's like, did, what I was thinking. I was like, like did is they, this ever a thing? Did they think that this was like a new technology that was going to take off? Like people could text the police like we can't even text the police now as far as i know maybe Uh, can we no i don't know well okay funny story what we can do is we can hit our button on the side of our iphones three times and it it starts calling 911 okay there we go that's true but (laughs) i accidentally did that today in the starbucks line trying to turn (gasps) down my volume and it started calling 911 and i hung up and then the police department called me no they didn't (laughs) yeah they called me back and i was like white woman in trouble ah! <laughs> scary movie <laughs> yeah the scary movie reference people <laughs> right <laughs> so then we get to this moment where billy comes in through the window and in the most 90s of 90s moments <laughs> drops a cell phone and it is full-on dun 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 like yes which is something that is just not of our time <laughs> I know, like, what is that? <laughs> yeah, wh- what the hell is that? How do you have a cell phone? 
nowadays we literally be like, oh my god, you dropped your cell phone. Oh my god, did it, did it crack? <laughs> yeah, did it crack? Oh shit! Is it okay? Yeah. Oh god, I've isn't that crazy? I feel like that's something that never. It's like a new reaction we've had as like a as a as a human race having cell yeah. phones is a, when you see somebody drop their phone you have like oh my god oh my god is it okay Be- yeah because we <laughs> know how expensive they are these fucking phones are i know and i'm sure this one was expensive too back then you know the technology in this movie is the only thing that really ages this film if yeah, you took so the computers dated. and phones out you would literally you wouldn't know when this movie was made so, except for some of the hairstyles but like the styling like the costuming is i mean with the way people dress these days uh, from all different decades oh, yeah. it's and coming back every time yeah you wouldn't know this between now and 1996 yeah seriously yeah the, the fashion is always coming back in rotation and you know 90s fashion is so in right now swinging 90s and now we're going into the early 2000s oh so Jesus. Pe- pe- pretty soon people are gonna be walking around with gail weathers hair from scream 3 <laughs> no not the bangs not the bangs. <laughs> yeah. just leave out the like those mid shin length skirts and i can get down with 2000s fashion just i can't do the those those skirts they're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so yeah that like i i feel like i've had to explain it to people several times if i've shown them this movie for the first time i'm like yeah oh the reason why that's weird is because it's 1996 and they they like didn't have cell phones back then they're like oh okay oh, like yeah. the fa- like it, we're they- so trained to not even think that cell phones are a thing now that back it then, is kind of weird were. though that like sydney like he does have a cell phone which we find out is separate from the call the cell phone making the calls but it's like why didn't his girlfriend know that <laughs> yeah yeah that's just for this moment right there that's yeah. fucking suspect right there so i guess i it's not so much that he had a cell phone maybe it's the fact that he had a cell phone and never told her they could have been chatting all night yeah Seriously. Pri- on a private line. So dad couldn't get on the phone and say, get off. It's time for bed. One of my favorite moments in this film. I don't, it's so, it seems so out of character for her. But this, this moment when Sydney's leaving the, the police station, she thinks she's going to get into a car and she's just bombarded by reporters led by Gail Weathers. And she makes an off the cuff remark about sending Sydney a copy of her upcoming book about her mother's murder and Sydney full on decks her in the face at the police station in front of a bunch of cops just full on assaults this woman <laughs> and, and they're like come on Sydney let's get out of here we're I know. good I'm like whoa this is so iconic this is one of the scenes as when I was little you know because I didn't really understand the storyline of this when I was watching it at six but this is one <laughs> of the moments where I thought it was just hilarious oh that is hilarious I would rewind it and play it and I'd be in tears crying like I'll send you a copy <laughs> yeah it's, it's like Sydney is violent like she lashes out violently and this is and at first I was like this is kind of she out of does. character but do you know what to be honest it probably isn't just out of character first and she does it again in Scream 2 she punches Gail in the face again so yeah this is like her thing she has violent <laughs> outbursts she's she's scary <laughs> yeah yeah she's she's dangerous and you know she's the dangerous woman Ariana this is when we see her beyond just being vulnerable and you know sort of like oh I'm sitting in my a wilting died. flower 
Yeah, this is where we see, oh, she has some fucking strength to her. She's like, she can get them good. Oh, she yeah. got a goddamn temper. Is what she yeah. I get she's it. She's rat. over it. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, she's over it. Especially Gail Weathers with her yeah. fucking bullshit. Like, that's, that was, honestly, she, I won't say anybody deserves to get uh, hit in the face, but honestly, that comment would take me out of character, too. Yeah. I'll send you a copy. Like, bitch, I don't want to read about my mother's murder and your cheesy ass fucking book, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At the Riley house, Tatum applauds Sydney for punching Gail. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we love Tatum. She's like, right. I'll send you a copy. Bam, bitch went down. I'll send you a copy. Bam, Sid, super bitch. You are so cool. <laughs> I love that moment. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Uh, Mrs. Riley interrupts the conversation, saying someone is on the phone for Sydney. Sydney attends to the phone. It is the killer, telling her she's accused the wrong guy again. So the next morning over breakfast, Sydney and the Rileys watch the news where it's revealed that Maureen's accused killer is Cotton Weary, played in a very brief cameo by Liev Schreiber. <laughs> yeah, but his character takes off. Yeah, he does. And, um... Thank 100% God. I mean, cotton. what would have happened had this movie not been a success? This would have been the strangest little cameo ever. But I guess he wasn't yeah. really much of a anybody yet. Yeah. But, uh, but and then we do notice also that in this moment that Cotton has just sort of a similar haircut to Billy's. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Which we don't ever see again. But in this short little uh, clip, we do see that. Yeah. So Cotton Weary was recently sentenced to death. At school, Sydney spots Gail Weathers applying makeup to cover up her bruise from Sydney's punch. Sydney approaches Gail, saying she needs to speak to her off the record as Gail owes her mother. Gail tries to reason with Sydney, saying Maureen's murder trial was last year's hottest court case, and someone was bound to write a book about it. Sydney expresses that she doesn't approve of Gail authoring the book as she does not believe Gail's theory that Cotton is actually innocent. Gail says Cotton was drunk, and while he did have sex with Maureen, he did not kill her. Sydney refuses to believe her mother would have an affair, insisting she saw Cotton leaving the crime scene. When Gail says the person she saw might not have been Cotton, uncertainty comes over Sydney and Gail notices. Gail starts to put the pieces together. Maureen's killer may still be on the loose, committing new murders and coming after Sydney. Gail needs to find proof in order to prove Cotton's innocence because it will do wonders for her book sales. <laughs> God, she's such a bitch. I love her. I know. I love it. Now that word has gotten out about the killer's costume, several students stalk the halls of the school jokingly wearing the costume. Sydney runs into Billy, who has been released. His cell phone records cleared. Sydney is uncomfortable, and Billy can't understand why, comparing her mother's murder to his mom walking out on him. This further upsets Sydney, who runs into the bathroom to escape Billy. In the bathroom, she overhears some mean girls debating whether Sydney could be the killer, driven to madness after her mother's murder. Okay, bitch, this would be us. Oh, this, <laughs> we're, we'll get into we're this. In this. I have a lot. To, I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> they also insinuate that Sydney's mother was a slut. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. In quotation marks. <laughs> yes, quote unquote, a slut. <laughs> when the girls leave the bathroom, Sydney is left alone and is attacked once again by Ghostface, who jumps out of a bathroom stall. She flees the scene, unsure if that was the actual killer. Gail discovers Dewey outside of the school. She attempts to flirt some information out of him. Her attempts fall, but she does learn Neil Prescott has still not been located. 
It is announced that school is suspended until further notice and there will be a town-wide curfew. Stu decides to throw a party in celebration of the school closing. In the principal's office, Principal Himbry plays around with a confiscated Ghostface costume. He hears a mysterious noise outside of his office. He goes to investigate but only finds the janitor cleaning. When he returns to his office, Ghostface attacks, stabbing him relentlessly. Principal Himbry falls to the ground, staring up at the killer. In the reflection of his eye, we see Ghostface watch on as he takes his final breaths. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, so again, we get more and more backstory on Maureen. So now we're getting to the nitty gritty of it. Now we have details about what happened, that she was a big ol' hoe. <laughs> no, that's wrong. She was not a big ol' hoe. She no. was, you know what? She was a, a sexually active lady. Yeah. Who, she, uh, you know, went out of her marriage and had sex with other men. She had a bit of a fidelity issue. Yes. And she, uh, you know, she went around town, went around the houses, as they say. And um, she <laughs> obviously got into a little trouble because she ended up being murdered. And um, <laughs> a little, oh, just a little bit of trouble. Yeah, just, just a little bit of trouble. Oh, and, that's um, not, this is in no way a joking yeah, matter in reality. No, in reality, yes. But luckily these people are fake. So um, I know. I think the backstory of Maureen Prescott that we get in screen three is what makes this a little bit of funnier. Just like, yeah, especially yeah. when we see her ghost and... Oh, God, her ghost, not her ghost. Hear her voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't you remember your mother? <laughs> now turn on the news! <laughs> <laughs> She's like a brassy broad, <laughs> Maureen. <laughs> yeah. Don't you recognize me, Laura? <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but we do find out that Sydney wrongly accused somebody of her mother's murder. And, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing at Brassy Broad. <laughs> she okay, was. Sorry, continue, continue. I know. I don't know how she sneakily went around town with other men. Well, she didn't. She got caught and taped, filmed. <laughs> she sounds like a foghorn to me, like Ethel Merman. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you come over and fuck me in the ass sometime? Look <laughs> at Mae West up in here. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Cotton. <laughs> I used to be an actress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to be in pictures. So yeah. what? <laughs> you ever hear of Rena Reynolds? <laughs> That's me. You ever seen Creatures from the San Andreas Fault? <laughs> <laughs> you might recognize she, me. <laughs> I love how they do the titles of those films. I'm like, okay, so she was in 50 <laughs> sci-fi movies. What the fuck? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> what year was she in these? In the 70s? I, yeah. yeah, these sound yeah. like really horrible B-movies from the fucking 1950s. Yeah. Something oh Elvira would cover. Yeah, literally. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we do get a little more backstory on that. Um, we learned that Sydney <laughs> wrongly accused somebody of killing her mother. And now this killer might still be, uh, might be after... Sydney and her friends. Oh, we don't know. We don't know yet that they're after her friends, but it no. comes to it. It does yeah. come to it. Oh, so then we have this this moment with between Sydney and Billy. Again, very suspect, and also I cannot believe how insensitive he is about the death of her mother. Well, I can't believe he didn't wash his hands after being fingerprinted. I know. I'm like, did you go 
straight to school. I mean, you can't even take a shower. You can't even stop the bathroom and wash your hands. He never takes a shower. Look at his hair. Yeah, literally just disgusting rat's nest. (laughs) 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 It's yeah. So they have this really insensitive conversation where he's like, your mom died. Get over it. My mom yeah. walked He's out. Like, what the on fuck me. is wrong with you? My mom walked out on me too. And she's like, yeah, your mom. Yeah. No, my mom off. did not, not do that. My mom hundred percent did not walk out on me. Yeah, she's dead. She's lying in a grave somewhere. I can't believe you're bringing this up. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I can't believe you're bringing this up. Sometimes I love Nev Campbell. She gets a little, she sometimes has the tendency to Kristen Stewart. Some of her lines, I will say she does. Yes. I know exactly what Spirit. you mean. She loves to speak through her breath. <laughs> yeah, she does but, do that. But we love She's her. Good. We she love got her. better as the series yeah. went and on. So her Kristen, acting. And so do Kristen Stewart. I will say she's sure she, yeah, she's gotten rid of those ticks. I will say. Anyway, so yeah, very <laughs> weird scene. But then we get into this bathroom scene, bitch. And, and bitch, this this scene is surprisingly polarizing, which I didn't, I never stopped to think of it as that. But then I listened to some other podcasts, of course, talk about Scream, and especially when it comes to women's interpretation of this scene, it's so different than how you and I have always talked about this scene. Really? Yes, I think that you and I have always seen this scene where these bitchy where this bitchy cheerleader is just going off about Sydney and what a slut her mother was. You and I, right. I think, have always acknowledged the campy value of this scene. I think we, right. it's we've the all... way she's touching her hair and yes. licking her lips and yeah, she's like yeah. A, yeah, she's like this blonde cheerleader who's just talking shit in the bathroom. And as I think I don't wanna group all gay people into one but it's like i think our gay interpretation <laughs> of this yeah is that this is like a bitchy campy funny moment this is almost like a drag queen doing this you know mm-hmm. and, we, and we we and i think we see the comedy in this scene <laughs> where you know what i'm saying yeah yeah uh-huh. and i think that uh, like women i don't even think straight men remember the scene would ever be even be in the movie i think they're like, they'd be like what? <laughs> no what what is that scene but like she's wim- hot <laughs> right but women have like a, a really adverse reaction to this scene because they're like this oh. like she's they're like this is so horrible for her to sit out sit in this bathroom stall listen to this girl you know just brutally smear her mother's name through the through the mud the fucking mud yeah, the and trenches like, yeah and and i think i don't know if it's just like brings up like bullying between girls i don't know it yeah. is a, i mean it is obviously a very bullying moment but i just i'm just so fascinated by this by that reading by this because scene. that is not that's yeah. not at all how you and i had ever interpreted it and it does not mean no. that and it their point of view is 100 percent valid but i just think it's so funny that you and i have laughed about this scene for years we thought it for was years. hilarious yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I did write this time around for this viewing, I did write that this scene shows us like the two sides of the story, like what people think about it, especially like a teenager, like a young, immature person speaking on things that are beyond her comprehension. Right. And like saying these awful things, like, maybe she's a slut, just like her mother. It's true, you know? It's, like, that kind of, like, trash talk. Um, And then you... And then it's very campy, and the girl is very colorful, and I think that they kept it that way because because that that's how it is that's how people talk about things and then you get uh the glimpses of sydney in the stall overhearing it and then you realize oh this isn't funny 
No, it's it, sad. yeah, yeah, it's actually sad. Like you were, you're literally watching her crying, here overhearing these girls watch, or listen to her say these things about her mother, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe that we've all we've always sort of trivialized this scene. It is actually pretty sad. Yeah, but but we've been. It's, uh, I, it's sort of like how like comedy has. Um, you know developed over the years like it used to be like bad jokes and race jokes and this joke and that joke and now you can't do that anymore right you know because we've learned as a culture that something like this conversation can be very damaging yeah totally yeah absolutely i agree and like this girl yeah the slut shaming i think this girl is obviously not supposed we aren't supposed to regard her very highly i don't think we're supposed to see her as like a person of good moral standing but um I don't know. Do you know I, what I always think? There's a dude, there's graffiti on the wall in the bathroom that says Dana's fast. And for some reason, I just associate that with the cheerleaders. I'm like, she must be Dana. <laughs> yeah, she's for sure Dana. She's fast. She's, she's on the track team. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> That's what that means, right? Dana's fast. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, oh, so. Yeah, that's a really interesting interpret. Like, I don't know. That I'm- is that is really interesting because yeah, I'm normally entertained by it, but but you're right. And even this time around, I did sort of see it differently because I'm like, oh wait, Sydney. I'm usually just so stuck on like what she's saying and like yeah. when she's like, where yeah, do you where get, get this, this shit? shit? Ricky, Ricky Lake. Lake. <laughs> yeah, which is another reference. Obviously, this movie has Ricky Lake. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're not supposed to to really pay attention to this character. She's just sort of like this. She's a bitch. She's yeah. a bitch. She's a bitch. We think Gail's a bitch. No, this girl's a bitch. This girl's a straight up bitch. I would um, love to see her revisit in Scream 5 and she's bring, like, bring she gets back, murdered. Bring back Dana. She's fast. Bring back Dana. Dana, the <laughs> snotty cheerleader. Yeah. <laughs> so then um, we get a little, uh, a first glimpse of Gail and Dewey. Of uh, uh, This is where they mm-hmm. really meet, to be honest. Yeah. And how much, how much older is she supposed to be than him? And I feel like that age gap gets smaller and smaller with every film. I feel like they look in more and more close to each other in age. As you know, and it's, it's crazy because David Arquette, as we all know, it was originally reading for Billy, which is nuts. Like he's obviously not a teenager. <laughs> None of these kids are, but but him especially. I'm like, there's no way he's like in that in between phase. Like yeah, he was somewhere he was, in his twenties. He was playing a teen in Buffy four years earlier in the movie. So yeah, like, give it up, nuts. Oh, and then four years after this movie was made, he plays somebody undercover as a teenager oh in my high God. school and never been kissed. Also, <laughs> I love that movie. Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore, part of Flower Thumbs. Yes. Um. <laughs> so, I don't know. I I would picture Gail being like thirty-two. Do you picture her being older than that? Uh, I I'm sh- like thirty. I feel like after high after college, she just fucking hit the ground running, and she was like, and at thirty, yeah, her career is starting to bud. Right. Over this Maureen Prescott story. And so I feel like he... Oh, he's 25, right? So there are maybe yeah. like five years difference. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. Because <laughs> she obviously seems more mature and older than him, but that's just women in general. Men are disgusting. Um, <laughs> and they don't... They are not really mature until they're like 55, close to death. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just seems... 
and she has, but that's just her character. Like she has the power, um, which I think just makes her come across older. But I definitely see her older than twenty-five, and she kind of makes it sound that way when she's like, you know, I proved to be most popular against this demographic. Yeah, and yeah, and he's like, well, I was twenty-four for the whole year. You know, all this banter and bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's obviously spawned their real-life romance, Courtney Cox and David Arquette. And- they're a little baby now. Well, she's yeah. not a baby. She's like fucking our age. She's old. <laughs> she's an old yeah. ass bitch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now she's got weather's age now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then we have the death of Principal Hembry, which is sort of like, I don't know why, why technically Principal Hembry, it could have been anybody that they killed and hung from the goalpost, but it's probably, is this supposed to be like a comment on like kids like rebelling against authority? He's like an authority figure. Yeah, like, I mean, it can play into a lot of these theories, but it was really just added because there were 30 m- minutes of no kills between Steve and the party scene, or Casey and the party scene. Yeah, this is literally the first kill we've had in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was added, which the, and then they were able to incorporate it later, like, okay, this is how we're going to get the kids out of the party. Which is, um, yeah, that's great. I kind of, but this scene sometimes feels out of place. I remember yeah, being I a younger agree. viewer watching this just for the shits and giggles and being like, this seems boring. But it's just so like, oh yeah, this scene. All right, let's get through it. Let's get yeah. back to let's get back to the characters we care about. But and then I we do, have the Wes Craven cameo, which I lo- makes it just a little silly. I don't know. I kind of like it. I like him as Freddy, Freddy Fred, Krueger, the janitor. Fred the janitor. <laughs> I think it's adorable. But also, yeah. like, I think I, I think it's a cool kind of dumb, little. Though. I will say that it is kind of dumb. Even the death is kind of dumb. Like his reactions and the thing he's trying on the ghost face mask. <laughs> like I don't know. Yeah. It's just a little like okay. Like let's. I just wish it were, were faster. Like that. There's a pacing issue here. Right, um, yeah. I right. don't know. I just I'm not a fan of this this scene. But I do love the shot, um, which was Bob Weinstein's idea that. Um, he had the ghost face reflection in his eyeball. I think that's really an, icon- an iconic shot for this movie. Back at the Riley house, Tatum and Sydney discuss her mother's murder. Tatum confesses that she somewhat believes the rumor circling Maureen's promiscuity because they seem to be common knowledge. Sydney uncomfortably admits that she may have wrongly accused Cotton, and if it wasn't him, then the killer is still out there. We find ourselves in the video store where Randy works. Stu is there talking to Randy about the ongoing investigation. Randy sees Billy in the store flirting with some girls in the horror section. Randy somewhat admits that he has an unrequited love for Sydney. He also says that he believes... (laughs) My God. Sydney is the killer. (laughs) Maybe. No. He also says that he believes Billy is the killer, but Stu thinks it's Neil Prescott. Suddenly, Billy grabs Randy and suggests that maybe Randy is the killer, and maybe his movie-freaked mind lost its reality button. Billy is very threatening, further convincing Randy that he's the killer. Later, as the town prepares for their curfew, Dewey takes Tatum and Sydney to the grocery store to buy some snacks for the party as he stops by the police station. Sheriff Burke reveals to Dewey that the phone calls to Casey and Sydney have been traced to Neil Prescott's phone. The sheriff tells Dewey to keep a close eye on Sydney. Dewey plans to watch over Sydney and Tatum as they party at Stu's. Also in attendance to survey the party is Gail. Dewey finds her and she explains she's there because you never know when and where a story might break. 
Dewey says he's going in to check out the party and invites Gail to join him. She agrees, but not before grabbing a compact camera from Kenny, which she can set up in the house. Gail and Dewey enter the house to a disapproving Sydney and Tatum. Gail sneakily sets up the camera above the VCR. So we have this video store scene, which I think is actually very important. I think it starts really establishing that Randy is following kind of a formula here that he's learned from horror films that everything is sort of falling in place towards. And it's falling in place that Billy and Stu are the, or at least Billy at this point, is the killer. And again, this movie does not care about letting us know that that's a fact because they are, again, very suspect in this scene to the point where it is like so blatantly obvious. Yeah, it's basically the same scene that takes place later when they reveal to Sydney that they're the killers. Yeah, just how they approach him. Um, and Randy is right at the end of the day. Like, he, he yeah. has solved this. He's figured it out. And he says that all the police has to... All the police have to do is watch Prom Night and they'll have it figured yeah. out. I think that's so interesting. Like, reference. That Prom Night is the template. <laughs> I know, like, ew. <laughs> and Kevin Williamson in the commentary says, in no way is Prom Night my favorite horror movie at all. <laughs> oh, no. I've Oh, my God. I've, I've watched Prom Night. That is a disco slasher like no other. And it is hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> I'm like, how did Jamie Lee go from doing Halloween to doing that crap? Terror Seriously. Train. And- the Fog, Terror Train, Prom Night. Yeah. Um, so in, in this section of the movie, the one thing that irritates me about this entire movie, and actually the franchise in general, I think this movie has a major flaw in it, where it's that the ghost-faced costumed killer is stalking them in broad daylight. Like, oh, what I in know. The world? That scene in the grocery store is, it takes the me out of the movie. The grocery store one is so mind boggling. I'm, like, I'm like, why did they think this was okay? There's a scene where we're refer- referring to is where Sydney and Tatum are grocery shopping, having their, you know, typical conversation about boy problems, and obviously Sydney <clears throat> feeling insecure about, uh, Being sexually anorexic. Yeah, being sexually anorexic, as she calls it, and not giving it up to Billy yet. And fucking, there's a reflection of Ghostface fully in this grocery store. Bitch. As if no other person is going to see him. I'm like, okay. Why? Like, okay, I hate yeah, that this scene. is ridiculous. I hate that scene. Even when they're talking at Tatum's house and they're like, okay, we have a long night ahead of us. And they head back into the house and you see Ghostface in the bushes creeping around. Like, first <laughs> like, of all, why? who is that? Yeah, why? Yeah, which one of them is it? Why are they creeping around in the bushes in the full costume? I don't know. I hate it. I yeah. hate it. I literally, I hate, this is the only scene in any of the movies. I mean, the, I mean, ju- that's not even a scene. It's just those two little moments of glimpses that were so easy to cut out, I think are the biggest flaw in the movies. Yeah, they, those could have gone, for sure. Also, in this section, um, we start really seeing a little bit of Gail and Dewey's romance that really follows through through the next all fil- all the rest of the films. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I would have not seen the sequels would I actually think that they were actually Com- going to get together. Right. I feel like because from the majority of the film, other than this moment when they kiss, I don't feel like G- Gail is doing anything other than using Dewey. 
I know. To, I want to know where it snaps, like where she changes, and she's like, actually, I like this guy. Yeah, like, because- is it the walk? down the lonely road like i don't know what's going on yeah like i'm like why is this i don't know like i don't think had i seen had there not been any sequels i don't think i would have ever assumed that these two people actually were capable of being in a relationship together i thought she was just fully using him the entire time and they kiss too. but and then I mean, you get to scream too and she yeah, has a heart yeah. yeah well they have a they had a full-on relationship and breakup like it's like whoa yeah some really fun references in this section too are Tatum mentioning uh, that Sydney's starting to sound like some Wes Carpenter flick, which oh is God. Wes Craven and John Carpenter. Yeah. And then um, also the reference to Richard Gere and his rumors of the gerbil and his asshole. Yeah, no, that's like a real like <laughs> Hollywood urban legend. Yeah, that's so fucking weird. There has to be some truth to it, like Tatum says. Yeah, it's um, so hot. <laughs> <just> <laughs> and then as they get to um, the the town of Woodsboro, they you know they refer to it as the town that dreaded sundown. And then we get this amazing line where Tatum asks Sydney, "Just think, Sid, if they make a movie about you, who's gonna play you?" Oh and, my god. Uh, Dewey says. He sees her as a young Meg Ryan, which obviously she was way too old to play her at that point. But um, <laughs> but then she goes, thanks, Dewey. But with my luck, they'll cast Tori Spelling. And I love that they followed through with that in, in Scream 2 for Stab. It's, I think that is really funny. I know. And good for Tori Spelling for being a fucking good sport about oh, it. She loves when she's the butt of the joke. And she totally will like one up you and, and play into it. And I love that about Tori Spelling. I love Tori. I know. True Tory. Notorious. <laughs> True Tory. Notorious. <laughs> All right. So um, should we move on? Yeah, let's do it. So after being asked by Stu, Tatum heads to the garage to grab more beer. As she stalks up, the door to the garage slowly shuts, and a cat making its way out the pet door in the garage startles Tatum. Tatum goes back into the party, but the door is locked. She opens the automatic rolling garage door so she can go around to the front door, but as she walks to the exit, the door begins to close. She turns around to find ghost faces locking her inside the garage. Tatum is unconvinced the killer poses a threat and believes it to be Randy. Ghostface quickly ensures that he is to be feared and he grabs Tatum's arm and slices it open with his knife. Tatum quickly runs away, fighting back by throwing beer bottles. The killer stumbles over himself while trying to attack her, and this gives her a chance to make her way out, but the garage door is closed, so she attempts to escape through the pet door. As she crawls out, she is stuck and can't get all the way through. Ghostface turns on the automatic garage door and lifts Tatum off the ground, rolling all the way up until her head is crushed in the door frame. Gail makes her way back to the news van, seeing that her setup camera is working even though there's a 30-second delay. Just then, Dewey shows up to the van saying he's got a call about an abandoned car down the road. He asks if Gail would like to walk with him to find the car. Which is um, terrible policing, by the way. Why would he do that? Right. He's just fucking this investigation up. Let me bring this civilian with me to go do police work. Sounds. Let me bring this reporter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the party is clearing out, leaving behind just a few people. Billy pops up and Sue suggests that he and Sydney should go up to his parents' room and quote-unquote talk. Sydney agrees, saying she does want to talk to Billy. Sydney confides in Billy that she's done grieving and lying to herself about who her mom was. Billy empathizes with her and they begin to make out, eventually leading to sex. Downstairs, the remaining partygoers watch Halloween. Randy explains that Jamie Lee Curtis survives the movies because she follows the rules. 
When the party seems unfamiliar with the rules to survive a horror movie, Randy breaks it down. Rule number one, you can never have sex. Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. And number three, never say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Because you won't be back. (laughs) The watch is interrupted when Randy answers the ringing house phone. He receives news that Principal Hembry was murdered and hung from the goalposts on the school's football field. The rest of the party clears out so they can catch the sight of his body before they pry him down. Poor Tatum. Poor Tatum. She put up a fight, but ultimately the garage door was her downfall. Yeah, and those tiggle bitties. That somehow can get through and also can't get through, depending on what shot you're looking at. (laughs) This editing is severely fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty bad. (laughs) Like it's pretty bad. Sometimes her like she's like down to her waist through the door, and sometimes she's (laughs) shoulders. (laughs) Depending. At one point, I saw her with all the way out, and it was just her feet in the garage. I saw her running down the street in one (laughs) one shot, and the other one. No, seriously, and you can tell the difference between her being in the pet door and then like her body double or her, her stunt double sorry uh, because the stunt double's wig is so poofy that oh it's like God. there's an obvious difference between her and the stunt double um, the editing in this is just really bad yeah messy why I don't know but I think it's because they originally cut out some of these frames because of the MPAA rating so originally that Barbie doll crushed head scene that we always make fun <laughs> we of we always make fun of that Honestly, you guys, you cannot say that this is obviously like a rubber version of Rose McGowan (laughs) because the way it smashes, I don't think it would look like that. But no blood, no blood, just rubber, just full on like your skull is crushed in, but the (laughs) eyes bulge out. Like it just looks like when you squish a Barbie doll's head. That's exactly what she looks like. Um, uh, where was I going with this? I was I gonna say. I don't know. Oh, oh, so originally in the cuts that they made for the MPAA, this one shot of her head being crushed was not in there. Really? Isn't that crazy? I know, and it's so iconic at this point. Like, you have Whoa, to leave it in. That's crazy. But I don't know. I don't know if that was, like, the issue was, like, just the editing for the MPAA or if it was really just because she could fit through the fucking pet door and it just wasn't working. But they should have marked her or in some way we're like don't go past here yeah, don't do this like we're this. gonna wrap a velcro waistband around you and don't go past that mark <laughs> for editing but she's like her hips are almost all the way out and then at one point it's just her neck and then one arm and then no arms I don't know it, <laughs> <laughs> honestly the editing was better in scary movie for this garage <laughs> scene <laughs> I'm just a day player okay <laughs> <laughs> Tracy Turnblad. Yeah, fucking like Tracy Turnblad, Marissa Turnblaker. <laughs> I was like, why does the killer kill Tatum? I mean, obviously she had to die because all the friends had to die. Well, but I, I also like, why does Casey die? Because they're dated Stu. Right. I mean, I feel like Casey. <laughs> and he's one of the killers. Casey, I feel like is random. I feel like she's literally picked because she's Stu's ex and they needed something to be the catalyst. And she's an unfortunate, just an unfortunate choice. Like Tatum has to die mostly because I said before, like she's like Sydney's guardian, right? She's yeah. like the protector, and so they knew that there was no way to get to Sydney as Tatum is constantly swatting off people, including Gail Weathers, and you know, oh, okay. like yeah. you know, she, so they have to get rid of her in a way, but also because of Stu's involvement, like in the you know, mm-hmm. in the, like she just has to go. Um, 
But, but well, we, some... we would learn, I think, that between the two of them together, they could probably outsmart Billy and Stu together. Oh, totally. So... Like, if if she was there in the finale, she'd be a problem. Because she, right. she, she... I don't think she'd, she'd be, be afraid. She'd be kicking ass. Yeah, she'd be kicking ass with Sydney by her side. So they knew they needed to get Tatum out of the way because she is a fighter. And I... Mm-hmm. And it also, they all had to die. Like, I get it. They all had yeah, to die. But The um, friends, yeah. Yeah, anyway. So, I don't know. I always f- find that question sort of interesting. Like, why is Tatum killed? But Yeah. But it, she, it makes she's sense. Not, I think the way you put it was the best. Like, she's sort of like the protector. So, get rid of her. Like, a security guard, you know? Like, get, right, her, get rid exactly. of them so you can get to the star. <laughs> get to the star. And also, she needs to be out of the way because if Stu and Billy are going to be the ones alive in the end. She has to die anyway. So then we have this conversation between Billy and Sydney in the room where he's kind of like, you know, this is all just a movie, which I think is really clever dialogue because it's like I a mean, lot it's deeper the most, like, than the obvious, conversations. Yeah, it's a lot, the most yeah. obviously meta of the, of the conversations. Yeah, where she's like, he's like, it's all just a movie, Sydney. But it's delivered in a way where you feel like these people are really having a conversation. And um, this is also something of the lines that Billy has in this that are very telling that he's the killer. Um, yeah. And he made subtle choices in this, which I never noticed. Even watching the commentary when they're talking about this, I still don't notice it. But um, Ski Ulrich made certain choices, like looking toward the door where Stu will later pop out to be... To stab, to fake stab him, hmm. um, like little choices he makes um, throughout the film, make it like obvious that he's the killer. Like just beyond the writing, like choices that he made, he wanted the audience to know that he was, the, or and even Wes Craven, he wanted Wes Craven to know that he was making conscious choices that said he knows he's the, ki- you know, he's not trying to hide right. the fact that he's the killer. Which I don't think we see again until Scream Four. When you rewatch Scream Four after you've seen it once then you're able to see where Emma Roberts kind of makes these choices yeah. that you're like, like her certain looks that she makes, like when the killer's passing by her, like, yeah, like let's hurry up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. No, like totally. sort of, so I think that's a really smart thing, but it's very subtle to the point where I would have never noticed that had I not watched the commentary. Wow. Yeah. I never knew that either. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. There's always stuff to learn. There's always stuff to learn. There's always something to learn from this film. I've learned something new from this throughout this whole thing. So, um, Randy breaks down the rules to surviving a horror movie, which are never have sex, never drink or do drugs, and never say, I'll be right back. I honestly wish they would have thought of something stronger for rule number three. I know. I mean, yeah, t- totally. That's like a cheap one. But the first two are That's really... The first two are really smart, and I think one of the best sequences in this film is watching them actively breaking these rules while mm-hmm. he's talking about it. I mean, literally, Sydney's yes. upstairs having sex with Billy while Randy is talking about let's not you cannot drink and do drugs while these people are literally all wasted drinking having this conversation <laughs> it's just like I don't know it's just like so brilliantly done and um, it is yeah I, I love that I, I think that's a, such a smart choice and it's just clever writing it's just very the, but I agree the last rule stupid like yeah the last rule let's get rid of it um, so this is what I wanted to talk about when you're like, who are the friends on the bus that are like, hey, Sid, bye, Sid. Whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, is it these so, two girls? <laughs> there's these two girls, right? Okay. So, but after they show the two girls sitting there watching the movie, there's like a few other people on the couches as well. We see them leaving 
also like there's this really brief moment where Stu ushers more people out of the house and he's like bye I don't know where Tatum went yeah. you know whatever and so and then we get to just this like couple of guys that eventually take off to see Principal Hembry on the goalpost there's just like a few guys and the girl with the curly black hair yeah and when uh, Linda in the Halloween movie uh, PJ Souls is Linda t- shows her tits um they're like, yeah, you know, and the girl with the curly black hair is disappears from the party saying that she'll leave them. She's like, I'll leave you guys alone. Um, and then when the guys flee the house, she's never seen again. And I'm like, oh. where did she go? Like, she says, I'll let you guys, you know, like, yeah, it sounds like she's just going to go to the bathroom. And then like the guys leave and I paid attention this time where I'm like where does she go she's not with the guys that run out they left her there so I'm like where is she like I feel (laughs) like she could have either like they could have like shown her like dead body or something but like also I'm like was she in on this she's in a complex we kind of see like Stu like playing with her hair and like maybe it was her that killed this (laughs) oh my god there's a third there's a fourth killer involved in this if we follow Scream 3 uh, then there are more Romans here somewhere. Yeah. I would love to kind of see this played up. Like with like at a flashback scene of Scream where they show Stu like playing with their <laughs> hair. Because I know everybody wants it's Stu her. to come back with his burnt face, but like I don't think I want to see that. But I would you really see love this to, girl? if they I kind of feel like <laughs> I would like if they kind of like herald back to some of these like cameos or some of these small bit roles that they had in Scream One, like play out in Scream Five. Because do these people oh, still shit. live in Woodsboro? Yeah, like, bring where back was the girl. Bring back where was Dana. The girl with the bring black back the girl hair. <laughs> bring the back the curly hair girl. I know they can have her somebody else play her, but I'm just like, was she in on this? Because she's like, I'll leave you two alone, and then all of this action starts happening. And you're like, it was her. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Gail and Dewey are strolling down the road as Dewey tries to find the abandoned car. When they are run off the road by the drunken partygoers on their way to the school, they share a kiss. Gail then notices the car he's been looking for. Dewey immediately recognizes that the car belongs to Neil Prescott. After having sex, Sidney interrogates Billy on who he called from the police station while he was under custody, thinking it would be clever if he called her to convince her he's not the killer. Just then, Ghostface enters the bedroom, stabbing Billy several times. Sydney runs out of the room. Ghostface quickly chases behind her. She falls from a second-story window during the chase, where she discovers Tatum's body hanging from the garage. Randy, still drunkenly watching Halloween, is oblivious that the killer is creeping up behind him. Sydney makes her way to Gail's news van, startling a sleeping Kenny with a bag of Tostitos in his hand. <laughs> She says the killer is in the house. Kenny shows her the camera surveillance, where they see Ghostface is approaching Randy. Kenny jumps up, hoping he can rescue Randy, but quickly reminds himself that there's a 30-second delay in the live footage. They watch on and see Ghostface pass by Randy and head out of the house. Kenny turns back toward the house, but Ghostface pops up and slices his throat open. In one last heroic move, Kenny points to a way out of the news van so Sydney can't escape. She exits the van and runs off. Dewey and Gail come back to the house. Dewey bravely makes his way into the house, distracted by Halloween playing in the background. Gail finds her news van is empty. Kenny nowhere in sight. A pool of blood and Cheetos under her feet. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I want to go out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It'd be Twizzlers. Yeah, literally. Um. (laughs) Gail gets into the driver's seat where she is abruptly approached by Randy. She knocks him out with her van's phone. 
She starts the van so she can take off, but she can't see out of the window. She turns on the windshield wipers and discovers the substance blocking her view is blood. She puts the van in reverse and Kenny's body slides down the roof of the van. Gail screams in terror and drives off, Kenny's body flying off the roof. Gail doesn't make it far before Sydney runs into the road, causing Gail to swerve off the road and crash into a tree. Sydney runs back up to the house yelling for Dewey. Suddenly, Dewey stumbles out of the front door, falling to the ground, a knife sticking up from his back. Ghostface appears behind him, pulling the knife out of his back, then rushing towards Sydney. Woo! All right, so this is where we first find Neil Prescott's car, which I think is the biggest clue that Stu is involved, since the car is at his house. But I think the idea is that we think that maybe right, Neil exactly. might be the killer. I guess he- you don't... Yeah, like you don't like realize that this is a clue until maybe a rewatch. Because you're like, oh, maybe Neil is the killer. But I don't know. I don't I never I don't think I ever believed that Neil Prescott was involved in the killing. No, I don't think so either. He's not enough of a character for us to care. Could you imagine if he popped up as the killer? It would be like, okay, who are you? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. That sucks. Yeah, no. I don't know. I don't feel like anybody ever suspects Neil, but I see what they were going for. But I think it's more of a clue that Stu's yeah. involved. I think in 80s horror, he would have been the killer because the 80s had a knack for making, like, for, you know, slashers, like, the not the heavy hitter slashers, but, like, where they have, like, the killers, like, this background character that no one cared oh about. God. It's like, what the fuck? This is, this this is ridiculous. Scooby-Doo. I think even the 90s movies do that. Um, yeah, Scooby Doo. Um, so we get a lot of things in this film. I, I, I mean, in this section, I really think that I, I love the use of the Halloween being like background music. Yeah, I mean, it's so. I cool. love it because obviously it's a direct influence, right? For this and movie. I think, I think I talked about this in our Halloween episode. But these movies have so much connection with each other, and they're constantly like, yes. They're like ins- they're inspired by each other. I honestly think even like the new Halloween, I think definitely was inspired a lot by Scream, and I think that Scream was obviously inspired a lot by the original Halloween, and they just sort of keep influencing each other. And I feel like they're yeah, they're definitely like right. sisters in this world, and I love that. That's so sweet. I won't be surprised when Scream Five comes out and it's like Halloween. It was like Michael Myers. Like. <laughs> like- it's like fucking intense and yeah yeah there's like a heavy ass body I know, count. Maybe. um you never know there is a reference that i never caught in this and it's uh kevin williamson says it's the blood drenched prom queen walking down the road and the car swerving off is a direct influence to carrie oh. when carrie is walking down the road and Chris and Billy make their way toward Carrie and they swerve off oh, that the road is, and hit a tree. That is a super, yeah. I'm like, what? I never even thought about that. That is, I never thought of that. I was like, whoa. That's true. And the fact that it's Gail and Sydney. Yeah, you know, rivals. Where it's like, she doesn't even like this bitch. She doesn't even go to check on her. She's like, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I gotta go. Fuck that bitch. <laughs> she ruined my life. <laughs> oh my god but also like during that scene why does Sydney run back to the house I'm like I, I would just 
take my ass down the street. She's, she literally looks like she's taking off down the road, and then we find her We're in like, front no, of the house again. Like, wrong way. Is this like a Blair Witch thing? Yeah. yeah. Wrong way. <laughs> Where she can't find her way out. <laughs> she's just like constantly going in circles. She's like in a continuum or whatever. There is so there are some acting choices in here that Nev Campbell does. And you kind of talked about talking to her through, through her breath. There's this really weird moment where I'm like, what's going on? And it's right before Billy is stabbed, before Ghostface is even in frame, even for Sydney, where he's like, what do I have to prove to you that I'm not a killer? And she's looking into his eyes intensely and she goes, oh my God. If Ghostface had never stepped into the room, what would what she, she oh, yeah. Why would she, she saying, saying that? oh my God, about? I know, I've always wondered that too. Is she like, oh my God, I never realized how remorseful you really were. Like, I don't know. Like, what is the rest of the sentence? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, or like, because to me, I'm like, this is where like, he looks like the most demented. Like his eyes start to turn like black almost. And I'm like, is she looking at him like, oh my God, <laughs> like in terror? Or is she, or I don't know. It's a weird choice and it's a weird line. I'm like, was this line written in the script? Or was she supposed to look up past him and then go, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, I think she interpreted it yeah. wrong if it was written into the script. Wes Craven gave Nev Campbell a note on the set of Scream, and it's something that she said she'll always pay attention to now, and, like, she's tried to stop after this movie. And it's touching her nose, neck, and hair too much Ooh. when she's supposed to be uncomfortable. And I really noticed oh, that. Oh, she always she, goes she for has her neck, neck problems, she rubs her she, neck. Sydney needs to get to a chiropractor. Because <laughs> she's like, oh, my neck I, is, oh, just so much pain. Yeah. There's a moment where when when Dewey walks into the house with Gail and Sydney becomes obviously uncomfortable, she does this thing to her hair and uh, in the commentary, Wes Craven goes, oh, there she goes, touching her hair. He's like, I gave her a note and she said that she never realized it and she actually kind of sort of stopped doing it as the sequels went on. But she like, didn't. She I, I can literally it. see her in Scream 2 doing it, touching her neck. She does do Dur- she During does the finale do yeah. Mrs. Loomis. And she always has these moments where she like transitions like from one sentence to another and she'll like grab her nose. Like she'll like wipe her nose. Like, yeah. And she takes it like an inhale. Like... Yeah, um, yeah, it's like uh, she has these like Tits, weird like but little manner. Yeah, I mean, she is the scream right. queen. Like, I know Laurie Strode, blah blah blah, but we're talking about scream, 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 scream. scream, scream. <laughs> yeah, I love her so much. Um, all right, let's just get to this finale right here. Yes, Sydney runs and locks herself in Dewey's police jeep. Ghostface reveals he has the keys. Sydney quickly uses the police radio in the car to call for help as we see the trunk door slowly open behind her. Ghostface attacks her from the back seat. Sydney runs out of the car, heading for the house. She turns to see Ghostface has disappeared. I will say, I think this scene is so intense and so fun. Just like the popping of the door unlocking and the, and like it's, it's intense, it's suspenseful, so but fun. also kind of cheeky. When like Ghostface is like sitting there like shaking his keys at he's like, Bitch, I got the keys. He's like, You ain't getting away mm-hmm. from me. I think Kevin Williamson said that he wrote that scene originally like in a script when he was like a student, like when he was first writing. Yeah. He wrote this into some kind of cheap horror oh, film. Oh, I love it. It plays really effective I here. Totally. She's approached by Randy and Stu, who beg for her help. A distrusting Sydney pulls out Dewey's gun from his holster, threatening them to stay away. She locks herself into the house. Billy stumbles to the top of the stairs, where he falls, making his way towards Sydney. She frantically calls to him to help. He grabs the gun from her and opens the door, letting Randy inside. Randy exclaims that Stu's gone mad, to which Billy quotes Norman Bates in Psycho by replying, We all go a little mad sometimes, before shooting Randy in the chest. Real quick, I have a question about this. 
how does Randy know that Stu's gone psycho? What do, what do you think he did? I don't know. In my head, when he's saying that, I feel like uh, he saw Tatum and just assumed that Stu killed her. I mean, I guess. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know yeah, what... Yeah, because he's like, he's gone yeah, psycho. What do you did. mean? What, is, what did he do? Maybe he tried to kill him with his bare hands and it yeah, didn't work. Yeah, literally, maybe. <laughs> Billy's the killer. <laughs> Billy's the killer. Randy falls to the ground unconscious. Billy reveals the blood all over him is corn syrup. Same thing they use for pig's blood and carry. Sydney turns to escape, running right into Stu, who reveals he is also the killer by saying, Surprise, Sydney, through the voice changer they've been using to disguise their voices. As they threaten Sydney, she tells him they'll never get away with it, but Billy disagrees by confessing he killed her mother and framed Cotton. When Sydney asks why he killed her mother, Billy explains Maureen was having an affair with his father. When Mrs. Loomis found out about her husband's affair, she left him, abandoning Billy in the process. Billy reminds Sydney that because it is now past midnight, it is officially one year since her mother died. Stu then reveals that they have her father by bringing him out of the closet. He is wrapped up in duct tape. They reveal their plan is to kill Sydney and kill her father, staging it as a suicide. They will then pretend to be the sole survivors of Neil's murder spree and go on to plan the sequel. To play convincing victims, Billy and Stu proceed to stab each other, Billy taking several stabs at Stu. Billy instructs Stu to grab the gun so they can finish off their plan, but the gun is missing. Gail steps forward. She has the gun, but as she attempts to shoot, the gun isn't working because the safety is on. Billy kicks Gail back into the pillar on the porch and she is knocked unconscious. Billy is about to shoot Gail, but Stu notices that Sydney has disappeared. She calls the house, disguising her voice with a voice changer. As Billy tears apart the house looking for Sydney, she pops out from the closet in the ghost face costume, stabbing an umbrella into his chest, causing him to pass out onto the ground. Stu then attacks Sydney, wrestling her to the ground. Sydney smashes a vase over Stu's head, and while he is down to the ground, Sydney pops up and shoves the TV off its stand and screams, smashing into Stu's face, electrocuting him. Sydney makes her way over to Billy and finds Randy is still alive. Billy jumps up, punching Randy and attacking Sydney. Suddenly, Billy is shot in the chest by Gale. Sydney grabs the gun as Randy warns that the killer always comes back for one final scare. Billy then pops up one last time, but is quickly shot in the head by Sydney, getting her justice. Sydney then makes her way to her father and begins to untie him. As the sun rises and police arrive, Dewey, badly injured, is taken away by the ambulance and Gail makes an impromptu news report about the night's events. The credits roll. The end. Boom. Boom. Sweet screams, bitch. Just <laughs> so there's a lot that happens here. We un- end up finding out that the obviousness of Stu and Billy being the killers was... It true. true. They it were the killers true all along, and like I said, they did not try to hide that at all. Basically, no, no. They, they were yeah. pretty obvious. So we find yeah, that they were out. pretty obvious about them from the front, and so we get this motive. Like their motives are what's important, right? It's the millennium motive. Yeah, modems are modems, not modems. <laughs> Girl, modems, <laughs> routers, <laughs> and all of this shit. <laughs> motives are incidental, but in this case, they do have a motive. Well, mostly Billy Stu's motive is pretty basic it's peer pressure but i do think it might be a little bit more than that um but billy's motive is it's all mama drama <laughs> he's just upset 
that his mom left him, which he referenced earlier in the film. He tried to throw that in Sydney's face and make a false equivalency between their situations. And um, even though he's the cause of her, you know, of her situation. But right. um, yeah, so he, he wants revenge for something that he blames Sydney's mother for. And he's like continuing this killing spree why like because they want to they want to be the sole survivors of this situation of this stage situation like basically getting revenge on the entire prescott family framing the father killing sydney and then doing what living selfishly i don't don't know know. (laughs) this is this is a weird setup but i don't think these motives were set up initially in the original script Kevin Williams said that was said that when he was shopping the script around, uh, all of these people put in their input and saying that the killers shouldn't have a motive. Half the people said the killer should have a motive and half of them said they shouldn't. So he went with both. So there was one killer has no motive, barely has a motive, just doing it for the fun and, you know. And then the other one has this whole dilemma with his mother and wow, I want, the I w- family drama. I wonder why people wouldn't want a motive. They just want it to be... Sort of like a Halloween thing oh, where it's sure. like, why does Michael Myers kill? We don't sure. know why. Okay, all right. But if you're going to put faces to the... Yeah, we gotta know why. I know that's the thing. What makes them? Yeah, Michael Myers is like a mysterious boogeyman character, and these people are full-on people. What? Right? Like (laughs) they have to have a reason why they're doing this. And you know, there's I've listened to a lot of things lately, other podcasts, which honestly brought this like this queer coding of these two characters to my attention. When I honestly never thought about that. I never thought about the fact that Billy and Stu were possibly. You know, in, yeah, fucking. fucking or in some sort of <laughs> re- secret relationship. And I'm like, oh, do you know what? I guess it <sighs> d- in a way it does make sense. It's like, why does why is Stu so easily manipulated by Billy? Is it because he's in love with him? Maybe Billy doesn't sort of maybe Billy doesn't share those same feelings, but he uses Stu because he fully throws stew in the garbage when he stabs him a bunch of times like i don't think that billy maybe yeah. has the same uh feelings, feelings. but i feel like <laughs> stew is probably uh, yeah i don't know have has feelings maybe. for billy Up his ass. Yeah. yeah yeah there's a movie called elephant it's about a school shooting it was inspired by the columbine massacre yeah. and and the the kid i don't know that this really happened in real life but the killers the shooters in the movie they kind of show their backstory about them planning it i think it's elephant it might be a different movie but something about a school shooting and the shooters um they show them planning it and there are these moments where during their planning they get really intense about it and they end up making out and having sex yeah two boys shit yeah and i always and i remember watching it and being like wow this is like a billy and stew moment yeah totally so maybe that's right yeah i mean i don't know and it doesn't seem out of question it's just so subtle because it's not like specifically called out that they this is their situation but it does seems like some sort of like bonnie and clyde-esque kind of thing where they're like when everybody dies and we sort of run away together (laughs) doesn't it kind of sound like yeah 
Yeah, I imagine them like having Neil Prescott tied up and they're sort of like kissing his face, oh like fucking around with him. And and Billy's like, I'm going to fucking kill you and your daughter. And Stu's just sort of like dancing around <laughs> wearing his like silky robe. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's like what they imagine in their head. It's obviously not how it, how yeah. it turned out. But um, yeah. no, I could... I can definitely see that. Um, A lot of this section kind of has this idea that violence in cinema can directly influence the minds of impressionable teenagers, which I don't think is true. And I think that this has been like proven that no, like no matter how much I watched Scream when I was six and in no way am I even close to being Um, a serial killer. (laughs) I'm not even smart enough to be one. (laughs) So, <laughs> so like, I, I don't think it's true. And I think that they've done several studies and it, it's proven not to be true. But I just, I do like that sort of commentary of like, are these kids fucked up? Because are they desensitized from media or are they desensitized just because of how life is in the 90s and moving forward? Like what has developed, you know, since kind of the nuclear family setup when everything was censored. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, you know, it keeps going with that. Like movies make psychos more creative you know but and then like we we have this moment where i kind of compare it to the lost boys where he dies by death by radio where he you know she shoves the tv on his face and it's like literally like a physical interpretation of like tv frying the minds of young oh yeah totally and also i i don't know what which podcast i listen to on this but there's something about what's on the television when uh the tv is pushed what whatever scene is playing of halloween i i like i said i didn't think i never realized this but somebody said that whatever's playing i think it's it's either the tombstone or something that's on the tv when it's pushed onto Stu's face yes it's annie sprawled out on the bed with judith myers tombstone above her head the tombstone like falling there's something about that i don't remember what it was but it was a really good something that i learned from another it's kind of like the the positioning like the yeah. blocking is like similar yeah, to the movie I don't know. yeah exactly these, these movies are are very closely related yeah they spent some time like picking out like what movies were going to be on the tv and what they were going to yeah. talk about well because out. even in the beginning when when casey becker has the blue television screen Wes Craven said that's like just synonymous with starting a movie. Like when you turn the VCR on and you have the right input on the television and there's this blue screen waiting for the movie to start. So it's like you're about to watch a movie and then it ends with like the ending of Halloween. It's kind of cool. Halloween just like plays throughout. Yeah, no, totally, totally. (laughs) I love it. And then uh, we get Gail Weathers a little redemption moment. She's sort of been a... (laughs) sort of an anti-hero throughout the whole thing. And I think that she really comes through in the end. She fucking twice, twice she could have given up. She could have just ran for her life, but no, I think it's, it's very telling that underneath all of her ambition and everything is that she's actually a, a, a good person, even if it was for an, an opportunist moment where she could be the hero of the story. Um, I mean, yeah. I still think it came from a good place, and I'm glad that Gail gets a little due because she um, she deserves it. She's a she's a badass. She does. I really think that um, there are several genius things that, like having two killers, I think is like 
beyond. Oh, yeah. Like, it's such a smart oh, yeah, it's choice. It's such a twist and it, for the time. And it makes you stop questioning. Like, you have Zach Cherry who's going through, like, who killed who, but it just makes it, like, because I've never thought about that because I'm like, there are two of them, so they could pull this yeah. off. You know, I don't care who did what. Um, but... Yeah, I think that's. I think that was really clever to include two killers. Something that I don't think was really expected. Yeah, how many? I don't think I, I can remember another slasher film where there were two killers. Yeah, I know. Never, except the right. following. And then it sequels, became like a but, thing. For the, yeah, it became a thing for the franchise. The scream, the scream three, but yeah, because then you get to Scream two, and you're like, okay, who, who is? Yeah, who is the, the other one? There's two yeah, of them. Maybe there's three. Yeah, it could be as many killers uh, as you want, I guess, now. I think Matthew Lillard really shines as Stu after we find out he's the killer. All those ad-libs oh. that he does, like, Houston, we have a problem. Oh, and, but wait, you know, there's more! Yeah, or when uh, uh, he Billy throws the phone at his head, he wasn't supposed to, he's supposed to throw it on the counter, but it got stuck with the corn oh, syrup. Oh my god. On the, or the, the fake blood, I don't think it's corn syrup, but the fake blood, and so it accidentally hit him in the head, and so he improv that line, like, get me in the bed with the phone, you oh, yeah, dick! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matthew, shaggy. I know, a lot of people want him back, how? like, as if he were how? alive, because that was, like, the original... Apparently, you know, because somebody, that was the original was like, concept oh, for Scream 3. He's still moving after. I'm like, no, no, he's fucking dead. Give it up. Well, because if it were up to Kevin Williamson, he literally would have been like a mastermind from prison in Scream 3, which is ridiculous because we have never heard about this character being alive. So I really hope they don't go do that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think he shines. And I think that uh, Ski Ulrich as Billy has some really great moments as when he's finally like revealed to be the killer. Oh yeah. And he has just this darkness and this depth. And one thing that I learned about this film too is when she comes out of the closet as Ghostface, Sydney, and she stabs him with she the umbrella. <laughs> I always knew that she I always knew that she missed his padding like behind the scenes stuff. Like I always knew that she hit above the chest, but I didn't know that when Ski Ulrich was 10 years old, he had open heart surgery and has a metal <gasps> wire in his shoulder that was struck by the umbrella. And his scream is real, but I thought we thought because it was just hitting his skin and like she hits really hard. But no, it actually struck that that oh, metal Jesus. wire, that cable, and, and he's like electrocuted and just like. <laughs> and apparently, it's very painful. Shit, I can imagine. Why do you think Randy lives? I never understood exactly why Randy lives. Do. I think that they knew that the audience would have a lot of love mm. for him because obviously, if scary movie fans are going to be watching this movie. And I think that you sort you of identify with especially him if you're more. planning to carry on. Yes, and if you're planning on if you're planning to carry on sequels, you sort of need his voice to guide you through what the rules are. Because they even even after he dies, they bring him back for Scream Three, so he can say the rules of a trilogy. Woof. And it's like you sort of need this like narration, you know, of like because there's no one as sure. savvy as him. Like everyone's yeah, aware of the movies. Yeah, sure. But, I see. He's like he's like our yeah. spirit guide through the world of Scream. Because even Scream 4, no cameo from Randy, unfortunately. But you imagine? Oh we do get, but we do get a new set of characters who have, sure. who get to take over Randy's right, position. Which, so it's like you always need somebody like to explain the to you Kirby, why. She, like Kirby would probably be. She the Randy? Yeah, Kirby and Robbie. Uh, oh yeah, Robbie's more the Randy. Randy's split into like three characters. Literally. For Scream 4. Um, <laughs> and, and then, and then, so, no, I was just saying, then finally we get Sydney who gets to take back her power at the end of the day. Yeah, she's gonna shoot that fucker in the head because, regardless of what her mother did or any choices that she made, 
this Sydney does not. That's deserve right. This Maureen whatsoever. did not deserve that either. Maureen didn't deserve it either. Not no, for your fucking no. baby. Your, you're not your baby mama. <laughs> your mama drama. For your dumbass mama, that fucking Mrs. Lewis yeah, bitch. Mrs. Lewis ass bitch. <laughs> we luckily we get to see her bite the yeah. dust too, but um yeah, and I also think that a really disturbing moment in this where is like violence over cinema is uh, Billy and Stu stabbing each other. Ooh, yeah, I think that's that intense. That's an intense moment. Audiences always have a really intense reaction to that scene, that moment, because it's like, wow, this is fucking nuts. Yeah, these yeah, these people are crazy. <laughs> If you didn't know now, yeah. now you know. I know. And now in the age of where anybody will do anything to be famous. You yeah, know. absolutely. Then we get Jill Roberts. <laughs> yeah, then we get Jill Roberts. <laughs> I, so the ending to this film is brilliant. Oh, I was going oh, to say, the ending of this else. film, when the sun rises, to me, it's always like, it's like a breath of fresh air. Beautiful. I'm like, like, we can breathe again. Our characters have survived a hell of a night. The sun comes up, yeah, and it's just—I don't know—it's just a perfect little ending with that with that Moby oh, yeah, song Moby. in the background. Ah, That's so '90s. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh. <laughs> 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 Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. I really love it. And then you do get this transition into what the movies will be later on because you have Gail reporting. And that's sort of our last vision of Scream 1 is Gail reporting what just happened the previous night that she was clearly involved with. And when you hit Scream 2, after the opening sequence, you go straight into what Gail has done, yeah. really. It's Gail that, that is the cause for Scream that's 2. That's true. It is. <laughs> Stupid bitch. Just kidding. We love we love Gail. We love Gail. Um, her and her best-selling yes, books. The Woodsboro Murders. <laughs> um, great. Well, okay. Let's wrap this up. What do you What do you give it out of five? Bitch. Ten. ten. I give it a fifty. <laughs> out of- this is my. F- this is my fucking movie. Like all the commentaries in it, just the meta, the violence influencing these cynical teenagers. Like there's so much about this film that plays into it. It's the setting, the soundtrack, the score, the acting, the characters, the writing, the directing. Everything about this movie is just perfect to me. Even even those stupid, you know, the stupid yeah, grocery totally. store scene. Like just even those bad moments just make this film that much more Yeah. Iconic. This is the movie that I get excited to show people who've never seen it. Like I want I actively want people to watch this movie with me and I never get tired of it. I put this movie on to take naps. I you know like people are yeah, people are screaming dying yeah. and it's literally like a like a security blanket for me. I love this I love this I movie more than any other movie ever. I'm sorry. It's there's seriously. And, um I'm so happy we I, we could literally talk about this forever. This is probably like a a smidgen of what it's, we could have gone into about this film. But honestly, uh, but I think people will enjoy this because uh, we've got a lot of feedback that people love the Scream franchise right. uh, episode, so they'll love yeah, this absolutely. one. Well, um, longest yeah. fuck, <laughs> probably our longest episode oh yet, everybody. God. So you're welcome. <laughs> well, thank you for sticking <laughs> with us through this. Um, we love this movie. Go out, show your friends. It's the best movie ever. Um, it literally yeah. is, and I can't wait to talk yes. about the sequels. <laughs> All right, so um, before we sign off, we'll do this quickly. Follow us on our social media. You know where to find us: Instagram at Fear the Talking Queers. Email us. Don't forget to email us about those uh, about your stickers. So email us your 
Get your yeah, free stickers, get your free stickers. Um, So email us, fearthetalkingqueers at gmail.com. Visit our website, www.fearthetalkingqueers.com, where you can find reviews, you can find Valentine's Day cards, drinking games. Hello. Yeah. There's a stab wallpaper. There's a the Woodsboro Murders wallpaper. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, go check out any one of these various ways and um, enjoy your merch if you've got it. Oh, yes. my God. Well, we love you all so much. We love you as much as we love this film. So um, with that, I think we bid you a sweet screams, bitch. Bye. Bye. Bye.